Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> Crazy Rich Asians. Rich, we've been dating for over a year now, and I think it's about time people met my beautiful girlfriend. What about us taking an adventure east? Like Queens? Singapore, Colin's wedding. Don't you want to be my family? I hardly know anything about them. Every time I bring them up, it changes the subject. Maybe his parents are poor and he has to send them money. Let's take a bag and get you checked into first class. Can't afford this. So your family is rich. We're comfortable. That is exactly what a super rich person would say. Mom, this is Rachel Chu. She just thinks you're some like unrefined banana. No, no, no. Uh, those are your fingers. Yellow on the outside, white on the inside. Do some crazy. I chose to raise a family. For me, it was a privilege. But for you, you may think it's old-fashioned. Don't you want Nick to be happy? I know you're not what Nick needs. She's like trying to play a game of chicken with me, thinking I'm gonna swerve like a chicken. But you can't swerve. You gonna roll up and be like, bok bok, bitch. Okay, maybe like not as aggressive. I met a girl, I fell in love, and I want to marry her. You're Nicholas Young. You're untouchable. But Rachel's not. Have you prepped Rachel to face the wolves? You know I'm back, like I never left. I really admire you. It takes guts coming all the way over here, facing Nick's family. Another day, another breath. I know this much. You will never be enough. Yo, it's about time someone stood up to Auntie Eleanor. Well, you, not me. Oh, God. She can't know I was over here. I feel glorious, glorious. Got a chance to stop I was born for this, born for this. Ever since I can remember, my family has been my whole life. Rachel, Rachel. If Nick chose me, he would lose his family. And if he chose his family... He might spend the rest of his life resenting you. You nasty. You got a nasty. You got nastier. This is one of our favorite films of 2018, a romantic comedy family drama set in gorgeous Singapore, based on the novel by Kevin Kwan. And having read it over the past week, we can attest that the movie improves on virtually every aspect of the source text. With us today, we have Jesse Ferguson of Recorded Tomorrow, recently on our Highlander shows. Hello, Jesse. Hello, hello. And also, this is a rare treat. We are honored to be joined by one of the supporting cast of the movie itself. Calvin Wong Zerloon, who plays P.T. Go, Peklin's awkward brother. Hello, Calvin. Hello. Hello, heart hands. Heart hands, indeed. <laughs> and thank you so much for coming on. We are hoping we can pick your brains on what it was like for you during production. It was kind of nerve-wracking finding out you'd be on the show. I was like, right, can we do the thing we normally do? Whilst we got someone who was there, there, and I thought, no, let's just, just do it. We're going to say what we would have said anyway, but with Calvin here as a bonus. And thank you so much for being here. <clears throat> oh, yeah, no, it was a great pleasure. Please, please criticize the movie. I need, I, this is the one, this is one of the few things in my life that I actually think requires more critique than it's getting. Not because it's bad, it's very good, but a, a lot of the, um, the critique is saying one thing. Mm-hmm. You know, there, and it's not very nuanced either. And that one thing is, if it wasn't Asian, it would be unremarkable. And I'm to to which my response is, get bent. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> See, I've uh, I, I'll I'm, I'll come to that in just a bit. But I've been digging, and there was actually quite a lot of criticism that I'll be acknowledging, if not talking about the effects of 
uh, extensively. So, oh, by the way, truly, this is a global podcast because we had to find the only time of the day when we could all make this recording. <laughs> it is nine in the morning on Sunday for Sharon and I. We never record at nine in the morning. We are like six to eight o'clock at night only. Uh, so this is like we we woke up and started podcasting, and honestly, I've got a lot more energy than I normally have. It's oh, weird. Excellent. <laughs> Just had breakfast, and uh, it's one in the morning for poor Jesse. Thank you, Jesse. Thank so you, te- Jesse. Technically, you're still on Saturday time, and it's. Five- oh, I, I see what you're saying. Yeah, no, I I took a nap okay. at about nine, so that kind of got my got me restarted. So now I'm like, okay, Sunday morning, let's do this. Hang on a second. So that means that your girlfriend wants to play Kingdom Hearts three at one in the morning. That is correct. She's got the Disney shakes. <laughs> okay, uh, and it's five in the afternoon for Calvin. So if you could imagine a diagram of this, it's like two little arcs going out across the globe, one west, one east. Now, sometimes you can listen to our show before watching the film. Sometimes it even makes the film better for your first viewing. But this is one of those times when we really do suggest you see the movie first. We're going to be throwing out a lot of names, a lot of events, and it's going to be a lot more engaging if you have the anchor points for those. Plus, it's one of the best films of last year. It is now readily available at home, and it demands to be seen on the biggest screen in the highest definition possible with the sound up, and preferably access to some delicious food while you're watching because you will get hungry. Oh, the food. <laughs> now, I recall Bob Chipman saying at the beginning of 2018 that Black Panther and Crazy Rich Asians were going to be exemplary of what global cinema will look like in the coming years. Films which are steeped in the culture of their nation, but presented to outsiders in a seductive, alluring, vibrant and fascinating fashion. Now, according to the internet ticker, it is the first film by a major Hollywood studio to feature a majority Asian-American cast in a modern setting since The Joy Luck Club in 1993. And we went back and actually watched The Joy Luck Club for the first time for both of us yes. uh, just a couple of days ago, just to make sure that that was under our belts and we had some contrast. Um, it's it's kind of like how Black Panther was the first of its kind since coming to America, which could also be called Crazy Rich Africans. <laughs> yeah. I, that just occurred to me, but it's, it's about the Afri- <laughs> a fictional African royal family. Uh, Despite praise for that factor, the film did receive criticism for casting biracial actors over fully ethnically Chinese ones in certain roles. Additionally, criticisms were directed at the film for failing to have non-Chinese Singapore ethnic groups, notably Malay and Indian actors, as characters. And that is true. Aside from the Gurkha guards outside the Young House, I am struggling to think of any non-Chinese characters who even get lines. So to put that in perspective, one group of people were angry that there weren't far more pure-blood Chinese in the cast, and one group of people were angry that there weren't a far more diverse range of different ethnicities. This literally means they could not satisfy both parties. Now, I've read many articles over the past week that criticise this uh, or that about the film or signify weak or questionable elements, especially of culture misappropriation, the wealth gap and representation, and I'm frankly exhausted. It is possible to take something exquisitely sculpted and pick and pick and pick over subject matters that are absolutely valid, I might add, until there's nothing left but tatters, and it's impossible to know whether you can just enjoy anything anymore. 
What I will say is this. There aren't enough big films with Asian casts that don't have any fighting in them at all, uh, as in fist fighting, and that regular audiences are prepared to sit down and watch. That needs to change, and the more different and compelling viewpoints we can get released by studios prepared to put money behind them, the better. I want to see a lot more films like this, and also unlike this, released. And the more Asian producers, directors, and writers are on production teams for films not made in Asia, the less we will have to rely on the few examples so far as the be-all, end-all of Asian stories to be told on screen. Bear in mind, not two years ago, the most Japanese character in anime history, Major Makoto of Ghost in the Shell, got gifted as a role to the most privileged white actress in the world, albeit an incredibly talented one. The movie came out and it was not very well received, but had it been Rinko Kikuchi, it would at least have the ring of authenticity about it. Similarly, there was pressure for Rachel in this film to be a white woman. John M. Chu said no, and so it tells a very different tale of a Chinese-American fish out of water. So I'm going to proceed as though everyone has now seen the film. First off, because it might lead to quite a bit of insider knowledge as to the authenticity of this film's locations and customs, Calvin, can you tell us about your background and where you grew up and how that lent you perspective while watching Crazy Rich Asians? I'm Malaysian. I grew up in Malaysia, which, if you don't know, is used to be the same country as Singapore mm -hmm. until 1957, Malaysia, uh, Malaya gained its independence. Uh, and shortly after that, uh, Singapore was depending on who you ask, either asked to leave or ejected from hmm. the union. I don't want to go too far into that, partly because I don't want to get any of the details wrong, hmm. but I'm you can saying. look up the separation of, of Malaya and Singapore. But since then, the two countries have diverged greatly, and anyone you ask will say, no, they are definitely not the same, not culturally, not uh, in terms of food. The cuisine is different. It's not even say like, oh, it's like similar, right? No, they're they're fairly distinct like you you can ask any singaporean or any malaysian the food is not the same this movie is set in singapore so there are a lot of things in it that are not they are familiar but not one-to-one -one with the experience of the malaysians who who see the film like they would recognize and go oh yeah yeah that is a singapore thing i mean partly the scenery uh, partly the actors there's a lot of singaporean actors in in this film that malaysian audiences would recognize um rachel's mum is uh, played by Tang Keng Hua, who is a legend in Singaporean television. Pierre Peng is also a legend in Singaporean television. I believe they were on the same show together. And I think they were married on that show, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> Pierre Peng is Astrid's husband. Oh, okay, yeah. right. So my wow. yeah. One of the things that a lot of Malaysians enjoy is making fun of Singapore. Uh, we do this. We do this in the most good-natured and gentle-hearted way because we recognize that they are different from us. They are also richer than us in terms, in like relative, both relative and absolute terms. Like they have much higher purchasing power, and thus we get to make fun of them, right? It's not. You can it's punch not upwards. Exactly. It's not done to make fun of countries that are not doing as well. But Singapore is absolutely one hundred percent fair game. Um, <laughs> There's the the scene that you're referring to, uh, the one with with all the food. Mm -hmm. I think that they that they that they were they carefully calibrated that because there's one bit where Henry Golding's character says this is the best satay on the island, and I'm like, okay, that's fine because <coughs> if you had said this is the best satay in the world, I would have fought you. <laughs> I've had Singaporean satay. 
it's not as good. Now, the thing is, I, I don't really. This is not the fault. This is not the fault of individual Singaporean cooks. I sincerely believe it's because Singapore a long time ago embarked on this eat healthy campaign, and it's like less salt, less sugar in all their in all their food, and so all their local cuisine is just does not taste the same. Right. It's not a matter of quality so much as it is a matter of taste, and it's just not. If you grew up eating the Malaysian versions of these foods, the Singaporean versions are just no. They're inauthentic. They're, they're wrong. like diet Malaysian. Yeah. Uh, it's, not, it's not. Not. It's not even. That's not even fair to say, right? Okay. It's just not the same, and it's very shocking because it looks the same. The names are the same, and it's presented and served in the same way, but it just tastes wrong. There's a lot of good food on the island, and I'm sorry to take up so much time about food, but this is very, very important for all Malaysians and Singaporeans. Okay, it is. The national pastime Eating and talking about eating I will say that there's lots and lots of good food On the island When I was in Singapore uh, Previously, not just for the film But you know, in just my visits before that We ate very well and it, and it was all very, very nice But it was just None of it was stuff that we that you can get in Malaysia Do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like if there is a Malaysian version of a dish The Malaysian version is I'm very sorry to say this Singaporean Strictly superior <laughs> <laughs> I and cannot see. We I, lack Singaporean representation Malaysia. on this show. Malaysia. <laughs> oh, oh no, I mean, no, we've got Malaysia. If you could, if you want to get a Singaporean on to defend themselves, <laughs> <laughs> they can. You can. They just be wrong. That's actually part of the the book. I don't want to drag us all the way back to the uh, the, the subject at hand, but um, how the young people, like one of the the things they do is just argue about food uh, because it's it's a, a major uh, part of their, their culture the um and this was endearing in the book there's 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 more endearing in the film for me but as soon as colin and nick meet they're bitching at each other about which place to go to and 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 to uh um i don't like that the chicken there is greasy and, and this and that and it, it seems like food is just okay. a thing that is done all the time I can tell you that this conversation is accurate. <laughs> when you have friends, especially when you have long-time friends who come back, you only have a certain number of meals that you can share together, yeah. and each of them should be as excellent as possible. Okay. Yeah. That makes absolute perfect sense. Um, so what was your experience in filming? And by all means, go from beginning to end. So the first day that they brought me on, they, we were filming in KL. That's Kuala Lumpur, sorry. Mm-hmm. They had picked me up at 6 in the morning. They brought me to set and they said, oh, you can just, uh, you'll do hair and makeup and then you just wait in your trailer. I had a trailer. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> uh, you just wait in your trailer and we'll, we'll call you when it's time to go to set. And that was at about 7.30 in the morning. And I thought, okay, you know, I'll just wait for a few hours. It turned out to be quite a few hours. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's, that's shooting, right? 90% of it is waiting. Yeah. And... At about 11.30, 12 o'clock in the afternoon, they're like, okay, Calvin, it's time to come to set. And there's somebody who will, who will take, you to, take you to the location. And so I, I, I stepped down from my trailer. I'm already wearing, I'm already wearing my costume, which uh, this is the dinner scene, by the way, if you remember. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, the scene where Rachel is having, not dinner, lunch, lunch. Yes, at Picklin's house. Family. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's right. So I st- I'm walking down from my trailer. The steps are a bit steep, so I'm not looking around like, at my surroundings. Right, I'm just focusing on not falling over. And uh, and some and a voice next to me says, "Hi, how are you?" And I'm like, "Oh, hi. That's nice to meet you." And he goes, "I'm Ken." I was like, "Oh, Ken. That's nice to meet you." Hey, and he start, we start walking. 
No, I did not join the dots yet. Oh wow! <laughs> like we start walking, and this he's dressed in he's he's in costume already. That you know that white and gold uh, tracksuit thing, yeah. The, the Elvis yeah. thing, yeah. Yeah, not like the Elvis slash like Versace like look he's got going on. Yeah, mm-hmm. so he's wearing. And I'm just walking, and he's talking to me, and he says, "Ah, oh, you know, how are you doing?" And it's like, you know, I'm, it's, it's so nice to be in Malaysia. And I'm like, "Wait a minute, are you Ken Jeong?" <laughs> <laughs> this, this, I want to, I want to tell you the context on this. Okay, mm-hmm. Th- when I was cast for this movie, there was no information about it at all. All we knew was, "Oh, there's a book. It's going to be a movie. Who's who's in it? No idea. Hmm. Uh, who who's who's the director? No idea. Uh, um." You know, who's the cast members? No idea. So I did not know Ken Jeong was going to be in this film. I did not know Ken Jeong was going to be my dad. (laughs) (laughs) I did not know Ken Jeong was going to be there. Right? And I... So so I'm I'm walking and I'm like, Ken, 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 why do I know this guy? And he's like, are you Ken Jeong from Community? He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm like... "Ah." (laughs) (laughs) I love that you grabbed him from Community and not the Hangover trilogy. Thank you I haven't that. seen them. Oh, I haven't right, seen okay. them, but I, li- I like his work in Community. But yeah, yeah. there's like then. Um, but he was very, very nice to me. He was very gracious about the whole thing. He spent a lot of time uh, talking to me about what it was like to write um, because I'm a writer as a day job, and he would spend a lot of time talking to me about what it was like to write for Community and for his show, Doctor Ken. And he, you know, showed me pictures of his children and his house. He's got a new house. Yeah, this was just like hanging out. With someone, and oh my god, he drinks so much Coke Zero. <laughs> that makes so sense <laughs> for the energy. Yeah, same here. I would, I would go and say, "Do you want another one?" He's like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just give me, just give me two. Just give me two. Just keep uh, them coming." But, Utah, give me two. Just keep them coming. Yeah, exactly. Then, uh, then we we shot that scene, the dinner scene. Mm-hmm. That was three hours of eating or pretending to eat. The funny story that I like to repeat here is that for the first hour ish. They would say, "Okay, action!" and everyone, everyone eat. And I would, I would actually physically put the food in my mouth and chew mm-hmm. uh, before I realized that the camera is not on me, and I didn't need to be doing any of this. Right? Like I had just spent the last hour shoveling food into my mouth, and now I was feeling <laughs> nauseous, and now I had to eat for real because now the camera is going to be on me. Oh, oh no! I'm like, ah, yeah. But uh, but the actual doing the scene itself was really really chill, really relaxed. Because um, I've been in on a, in a few other productions, and one one of the things that that John the director does, his style is that if you blow the take, they don't cut. He doesn't cut. Just go. You just like re- redo start from start from the whatever the previous line was supposed to be, and just do it over and over again. Nice. That's my as, style as, too. Yeah. So what that does is it help it helps maintain the flow of your energy because you're not like cut reset back to one you know all that yeah um, and you just keep saying the line and saying the line and saying the line you say okay try this and we'll say it like three or four times like the 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 I love you line was sort of just thrown in there uh, <laughs> I don't know if you know this but originally I did not have any lines the entirety of my script was looks up awkwardly noodles fall from mouth. <laughs> because when I got to, when I got to the trailer that day, they, they had my they had my rush right. They got the one page. Not that's not called a rush. I can't remember what it's called, but you know, like they give you like the two pages of script yeah. that you're involved in. And I had one line, and that was it. And I was like, oh, I don't have to memorize any dialogue. Fantastic! This is going to be such an easy gig. It turned out that they liked uh, the energy that I was bringing to the film, 
um, that very sort of low-key, grounded humor that was sort of mm-hmm. the opposite of what everyone else in that room was doing. Mm-hmm. So they ended up bringing me in for extra bits, like the bit right at the very end of the film where I'm like, you know, giving hot hands to her as she's leaving in the taxi. Yeah, that was not in the script. That was there was just a okay. We like Calvin. We're going to bring Calvin down to Singapore for like twenty minutes of shooting. Well, there's a there's a key moment when uh, it's just been like desolation and slow building back up when when uh, Rachel's talking to her mother at the yeah. very end, and it's the, it's the emotional. Uh, it's connected to the emotional core of the movie, and everyone's right. feeling kind of washed out. But they, there's a sense that it's been rebuilt, and everything's kind of okay. So how do we come back from this? And then you turn up in just, in just yeah. a kind of way to make the audience go ha, PT, and yes. it's just the right moment it's just the right amount of of getting people back on it's not too overblown but it's it it was very well selected i was so impressed by how because obviously i did like i said john john makes you do like a lot of different approaches a lot of different energies and a lot of different takes i did not know what was going to be in the final film Mm. like he had pt go through a lot a wide range of atmospheres like vibes i guess you could say like he was like there was pervy PT, which I'm right. sort of very, which I'm very glad we did not go for. <laughs> yeah. um, there was there was a PT that was more reserved. There was a PT that was, I think, a little bit more aggressive. Mm-hmm. But the PT that they selected, uh, the, the, the takes that they use, and the energy that they use, is one who's where he's sort of just doesn't quite know the boundaries, but is essentially harmless, mm, like a puppy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wow! Thank you. <laughs> no, no, no. Seriously, that is that is actually a compliment. Thank you. Um, yeah, no, that's a, that is a perfect description, like a puppy. Uh, and the moment that you're talking about, where where the the built up moment is sort of, I don't even say undercut, right? Because because you know, there's, there's a very common technique in in cinema in the recent I don't know ten years hmm. for humor to undercut a serious moment to try and take some of the tension out of it. Mm-hmm. This is not even that. It's like what you were saying earlier. It was. Um, it was sort of we have already been built back up, and then the humor comes in to, to just to just take you know let go of the tension that the audience has been holding, and I think I think that's why so many people like PT, and it's my favorite mm-hmm. like part of the character as well, which is that he's always used to bring joy to the scene. Yeah, right. He's used to lighten the tension. He's used to take out negative energy and just infuse it with a kind of nice, pleasant air. Which I didn't know because, like I said, we did so many versions of PT. I'm like, I, and I had honestly forgotten half of them until I saw them in the film, and I was like, "Oh, this is this is the direction that they had chosen to go for." And they kept all my scenes because you don't know whether they're going to keep yeah. all your scenes. Although it is it is funny because you, you, I filmed that scene that you're talking about uh, the same day as the Ken Jong uh, dinner. Then it's you know vastly different energies mm. on that as well, and that yeah. that that one with with Rachel and her mom was shot very late at night, mm-hmm. uh, and I remember and I remember filming it, and Rachel and her mom are not actually even there, like they'd wrapped. Oh, they left. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I was I was doing it to an empty to an empty bed, and John just saying like do this, and I'm like I. That's why when I saw the final the production put together, I did not know what had happened in that scene right. so i thought i was just i thought i was just creeping on on <laughs> rachel again you know i did not know that that moment had that tender um vulnerable quality to it mm-hmm. i didn't know and they didn't tell me either they just said okay she's here she's on the bed with her mom and you take pictures and i'm like 
okay. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Fine. Please use these well. <laughs> We can start talking about the film itself because what you're describing there is an, is an excellence and elegance in editing. There's so much material here just on show that just seems to have been just perfectly, almost effortlessly selected and just sort of drawn into the screen to convey a strong, guided, authorial experience from any number of tones that they could have gone for and probably shot. If you look at the discrepancies between the book and the film, so much of this was very carefully adjusted let's talk about the film now you know when you first hear about this just the the, the title alone uh, for for announcer like crazy rich agents okay like are they are they mean crazy are they just are they wacky crazy uh, or is this going to be a genuinely obnoxious film like I, I would hold it up against say sex in the city one and two or the entourage movie like the worst that i thought it could be is you know, just this obnoxious tale of people who have no idea about the rest of the world, and uh, you know, made by somebody just as as equally tone deaf as the characters, and it wasn't that at all. And, I, and the the good reviews started coming in, and um, when I when I saw it, I was there was so many little details that endeared me to the characters and the story itself that I uh, st- you know started to really warm to it in the cinema on my own and then I brought Sharon back to see it the next day the question is to everyone why doesn't the film come off as obnoxious even if some of the characters do so you can just sort of list like ways that it draws you in I think for me the key element is how much of the characters' internal lives you get to pick up. And because it's an ensemble cast, the actors have to do a lot with that that isn't in the script. So considering it in terms of sort of comparison to things like Sex and the City where it's all about this what's the word? Aspiration porn. Aspiration let's, porn, yeah. let's present mm. something where the characters are incredibly wealthy and it will make the audience think, I want to have what they have. Now, that doesn't work on me. I've noticed this. Whenever I watch films that are, are like that, I kind of, that, all, that stuff's all kind of background. I'm like, well, that's irrelevant. What are the people doing? Yeah. And, and how do they feel? Exactly. What does this wealth insulate them from? Exactly. And, and what doesn't I it? I think it, the... the the hurdle that this had to overcome for me is the fact that when I watch things about people who are incredibly wealthy, there's a barrier for me. It's really hard to connect with the characters because it's it's sort of, you know, your, your wealth is just something that pushes me away. It doesn't draw me in and make me want to get to know you more. So the way they took the characters from, from the book... And I think this is this is also one of the key differences between presenting a story in a novel, especially an ensemble cast where you don't necessarily have a specific POV character. And in the book is there's a lot of moving backwards and forwards between different people's stories and different people's perspectives. And I think the advantage that a film has over a book when that is the style is that with the book, the author has to create the internal life for every single character. And that's really hard. It's hard enough to do it for one or two, but to do it for a massive, sprawling cast of people, to make everybody distinct, to make everybody have their own personality quirks that will make you remember them and that will make them endearing when you want them to be endearing and obnoxious when you want them to be obnoxious, that is so hard to do as a a person on your own. In a film... Yes, the scriptwriters add their layer, and the director is is obviously very important in terms of 
pointing where they want the scenes to play out and how they want the characters to be. But because every single actor gets to bring their own inflection and their own performance into their character... And their own wardrobe, which says a lot about them. Absolutely. That means that the, um, the, the internal lives of those characters is... It, it's created in a very layered and multi-dimensional way because so many people bring their own elements to it. There's a lot of visual shorthand. Exactly, and yeah. that adds a lot of depth that, frankly, and good Lord, I never thought I'd be the person to say this, that you just don't get in a novel. <laughs> it, it adds a lot of swift depth, as mm. in like you, you just a few minutes on screen, you can feel like you know the person, whereas if it was in a book, you're like, right, you need to start explaining to me about this person. Yeah, and I mean, a prime example is the difference between being able to look at the expression on Michelle Yeoh's face and the way she's standing and what that tells you about that character and how she's feeling in that moment and having to have three quarters of a page of description about exactly what's going through mm. her head. Well, the first time we meet uh, Mrs. Young uh, there at the Calthorpe Hotel dealing with racist white men and like that that's that's a, a very definite scene at the beginning of the novel and it is clearly right there at the beginning of the film to say <clears throat> it doesn't matter where you're from you might still have to deal with this shit if you're out of your element she, she's treated as though she's just anybody else which if you are just anybody else is somewhat endearing you're like oh, okay so now you might know how it feels. So, like, even though there's, there's this impenetrable person up there who's just this queen that we can't really get close to, you can see the, the frustration and the, the hurt and the, um, the indignance at that point. So, automatically, we're like, right, so down to earth straight away, there is a reason why this family might be somewhat fierce. Another thing that I absolutely loved about Astrid's introduction is, and this is entirely from the film, when she comes in and uh, kneels down with a a little girl and says, I I like your choice of yellow ribbon on that bear. Lyra, our daughter, immediately responded to that with, wow, that seems very genuine. I like this person. Which, considering she's then going in to to talk to this somewhat dodgy guy who basically takes, like, he's a very, you know, high society. Like, I will take the heirlooms of your mothers uh, to pay off the debts of your sons. Uh, like that's that's what that is. It's basically a high class pawn shop that she's gone into, and 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 it's like right, okay. So I'm gonna th- I'm gonna drop a million dollars on these earrings, and they're not the only purchase of the day. At that point, you've got to really like that character, otherwise you're like f off immediately as a normal person. I mean, there's a reason. There's a reason the buying the earring scene comes after the teddy bear scene. Yeah, mm, exactly. Yeah, it's very specifically placed. Yeah, right. And she doesn't have to do that. Like she, she could just walk straight past that little kid, but she stops, and you know, you, you get a little bit of Astrid. And I, I love movie Astrid. She's uh, and, and the way she's played with this elegance and this brittle. Um, kind of, you know, like wanting to make the world in a certain way, but she's not going to push it, and you can always see when she starts to break. Uh, but she's got this strength. 
a lot of what makes the movie work with you to your point of you know these are people that almost none of us can identify but what makes the movie work can probably be hung on just the chemistry between Constance Wu and Henry Golding the screenplay is phenomenal i don't want to put that down but like i would watch those two reenact the hangover movies <laughs> they work so well together any room for ken jeong <clears throat> i mean there's always room for ken jeong <laughs> Those two are great, and a large part of why the movie works, for me at least, was because they have such amazing chemistry. Yeah, I, I uh, read a, a couple of Amazon reviews, because I was like, the, the, the Blu-ray came out, and I was like, there's a couple of one-star reviews here. Let's see what the oh. always irrational and unreasonable people who give really great movies one-star reviews are. And this review said, there's no chemistry between the leads. And I was like, have you seen what? this film? <laughs> I have this... never seen two people look at each other with such adoration that didn't go overboard into, oh, just kill me now, this is too soppy. <laughs> There's a level of chemistry between so many of the characters, though, and that is yeah. so totally what sells this. The, the interactions between... Eleanor and her son, the interactions between uh, Nick and Colin, and, yeah, Colin. The, Michael oh, and Astrid. Fantastic. Michael and Astrid. There's, yeah. there's, there's links, there's connections, and those are the bits that made me feel, oh, hang on a minute, the, the experiences of relational connection and tension and happiness and discomfort that these people feel... So many of them are incredibly relatable to me, incredibly familiar to me. The, the idea of growing up in a family where people are very emotionally repressed and don't talk about their feelings. Oh, yeah, that one hit me where I live. So the fact that they're all incredibly rich becomes irrelevant, almost. Yeah. And that's, that's the best possible way of, of handling it, because if it's like... Well, the, the point is, they're like you, but ridiculously wealthy, as opposed to, they're not like you, they are gods that live up on Mount Olympus. That's been the struggle of the DC movies, to sort of bring these gods to the people, <laughs> whereas the Marvel movies are just like, well, they're exactly like you, and, you know, they're also funny. Yeah, and honestly, I mean, to answer Calvin's uh, point from what you said at the beginning, Calvin, about some of the criticism of this being that if it wasn't this huge Asian ensemble cast, it would have been unremarkable... No, it wouldn't, because if, if you had switched those actors out for white actors and it had just been a typical Hollywood family drama, if they'd still related to each other in the same way and still had the performances that they had, it still would have been the most fascinating family drama I've seen also, in a like, So just, oh, if they weren't Asian... The whole prejudice against Rachel being Asian-American is really key to the story. It's like saying, oh, if Black mm -hmm. Panther was White Panther, you wouldn't think it's great. Yeah, that's because Wakanda is key to the story. It's like it's that if, if Lord of the Rings was set in Dagenham, it would be unremarkable. Of course it would. Yeah. You're changing the fundamentals of the story. The... The elements of cultural discrepancy, some of them are, are to do with... Asian people who grow up with different backgrounds in, in different places. Some of them are to do with the relative wealth culture. Some of them are to do with educational culture and, and people who've been raised and taught in boarding schools as opposed to local schools. You know, there's a, there's a lot of different ways that they express these people, despite superficial similarities, 
have a lot of differences between them, and this is how they overcome them. And that's kind of the, the fundamental point of the whole story. The, I mean, the entire conflict, why he can't just marry Rachel, mm. is because he's expected to be the scion mm. of this generational family business. Mm. And it's not just that, it's also the fact that there's family pressure in this, not just, not just his parents, uh, his mom and his grandmom pa- pressuring him, but also he feeling the pressure himself. Mm. All the things his mother sacrificed for him to have the life that he had. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he feels like he can't let her down. Yeah. But at the same time, he wants to have his ha- his own happiness, and that and that is a that is a very common and core like theme to. I guess you could say like Asian American um, media specifically because for all that this movie is in Singapore and and comes in the trappings and the the setting of of which it is an Asian American movie first and foremost mm-hmm. right it's made by Asian Americans the it's uh, a lot of the cast is Asian American um, and I think it is primarily made for an Asian American audience. Now, of course, we down here in Southeast Asia really liked it, but it tells a very specifically Asian American um, diaspora kind of a story. Rachel's story of not being accepted for being ABC, American-born Chinese. Mm-hmm. That's how common that thing is, that it has its own term, and how Henry Golding's character also can't find acceptance because... He's supposed to be, you know, rich and what was that word you used? Like isolated from from like normal life. Uh, like he, uh, he tries, he try, he tries his whole life to insulate it. I think was the insulated. Word you used. That's yeah. The word, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he he tries his entire time in New York to be a normal person. He goes to the YMCA. He mm. he borrows a Netflix password, <laughs> you know, but he can't get away from it. So he just cannot get away from the fact that he is rich, even though he doesn't want. To be treated as such and to live his life as such. This is not really like an Asian American thing, but I think it's more getting at the core of the themes of the story, which is about identity and belonging. Mm. And I think that's going back to the earlier question, why did this film about the ultra wealthy work so well? Because uh, ultimately, it's not about richness. The wealth of the characters is just backdrop. Yeah. All right. It's about family. Well, the, the wealth creates the family pressure and facilitates the lifestyle, but it's not who they are. Yeah. I, I honestly feel that if, if it hadn't been about rich people, you still could have told a 95% similar story. Mm. Really, you could have. And um, there are some more sure. shallow characters who kind of like, you know, they have become just the wealth and exploding that wealth outwards. And, and they are, there's a very good reason why they're not center stage. Did you know I was, I was cast for Bernard? Like oh, when I went out oh, and I went into audition, mm-hmm. they were like, oh yeah, we would like you to play this hyper over the top billionaire playboy asshole. And I'm like, <laughs> I'll try, but I'm telling you now, you're not going to get there. <laughs> because if, if, if anyone has seen me in the movie, PT is like me just sort of dialed up to not even 11, like 10.2. <laughs> me talking to you now, I'm at like, you know, normal five, six-ish, you know, maybe amped up a little bit for the podcast. Yeah, no, PT is me at like 10-ish in a bit, 10 in a bit. So um, Bernard is like, another scale completely from that right it's on a different like log level (laughs) so so i did the audition and i was like i'm not getting this role 
I'm not getting Bernard. It's not going to happen, mm-hmm. right? There are like a thousand other Chinese boys in this town who can who can play that so much better than me. So originally, I thought I wasn't going to be in the film. And then they emailed me. I was like, oh, yeah, you've been cast as this weirdo brother. <laughs> like, yes. They got your number. Yes. <laughs> this is my speed. This is my limit. <laughs> I will give you 110% weirdo. <laughs> not, not the billionaire playboy. Can't do that. Shake that casting director's hand. Yeah, um, Jimmy O. Yang, who did play Bernard, they, uh, in the book, Bernard's really horrible. Oh, he like, is. Oh, yeah. oh, they, they dialed it back to just the right amount of... And, and here's the thing. The eye of the movie is clearly like, this is not what you're supposed to be like. Whether you are rich or poor, this guy is... Just uh, it's we've said toxic masculinity so many times the words have lost all meaning but it's it's that so it's beautifully contrasted with Nick and Colin who it doesn't matter that they're ridiculously wealthy they come across like two very natural old friends who are able to be masculine around each other without challenging each other without hitting each other in the nuts mm. you know yeah and I think John Chu said in the commentary that part of what they wanted to achieve with that relationship and with that scene specifically mm. was to to recalibrate this idea of how men who are friends relate to each other and it doesn't have to be all bro-ish and it can be that they recognise how each other are feeling and that they talk about their emotions and honestly so much of this is down to how Henry Golding plays the character but the level of emotional intelligence that Nick has is quite considerable especially considering that he was brought up in this repressed boarding school focused background yeah Mm-hmm. It's it's it, it's really impressive. Like he he reads people well. He understands them for the most part. And when he realizes he's got it wrong, he stops. He backs off. He asks questions. He's I am I love the fact that at the very end, when when Rachel and her mum are at the house, or when Rachel's at, at Pecklin's house on her own, and he's not he's not pushy he's not stalkerish he's not constantly knocking on the door you've got to listen to yeah. me mm. i have to explain yeah. he just yeah. he lays it out there i'm here if you want to talk and then he backs off he does he facilitates her mother being exactly. there exactly which he is the most yeah. yeah. I mean, really everyone everyone thought he was going to be the one to burst in through the door but mm. it's not him yeah yeah, yeah. and they you play know? with that expectation on purpose which is great yeah Yes. I feel like this is a movie... You were talking about the editing earlier, right? But I feel like Mm. the editing is one of the reasons I like it so much, Mm. and I suspect you do as well, Mm. is because it always feels like it's one step ahead of the audience. Mm -hmm. Like, it knows what the audience is expecting, and it doesn't go there. Absolutely. And and it subverts it for humor or for humanity. Um, I'll give you another example. There there was... um, When we wrapped filming, they showed us kind of like a mini trailer like a three minute super cut of okay. uh, a lot of the footage that they'd had so far um and there was this really big uh, the, it was the it was the boat party scene bernard's container ship party mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. which looks uh, like fun, a michael fun. bay film doing fast yeah, and furious <laughs> right, there's helicopters there's bazookas not joking so the, i actually was at the container ship set, like the the day that I came to do hair and makeup tests, they were filming that. Oh, right. And they said, do you want to come and see the container ship party set? And I'm like, yes. You know, <laughs> so I went in and there's like, you know, um, dozens of women walking around in bikinis, wearing bathrobes, and there's like toys everywhere, and there's a pool, there's a DJ, there's motorcycles in the container ship. Um, and then the the... the 
the assistant director told me you missed the helicopter it was here earlier and i'm like what is this movie (laughs) (laughs) one of the things i did see in the supercut was there and and you could actually watch it because the the deleted scenes came out and you can watch it in the deleted scenes um there is a really long like 30 second to a minute shot of the party yeah dance with a lot of yeah, with a lot of like you know girls dancing and butts and partying, and they just took it out of the movie. Like it was no small effort to film, right? This sort of thing, they would take it would have taken at least like the, the entire day of filming to get all these yeah. shots, and they just said, "Yeah, you know what? No, we're it's giving off the wrong energy. It's not what we want. It's taking time. I don't know what the decision was, but they decided whatever it was, not to have those scenes in." Yeah, there's uh, restraint in in doing yes. that. It's it's uh, noticing that that kind of shot is in whenever they want to like sh- push glamour in the Fast and Furious series, which we like. By the way, we really like, especially <laughs> five, six, and seven. Um, yep. That every time it's like 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 you could be like going, it's all about family, and like having a really emotional <laughs> scene, and then the next one's like, and at the car meet, bow, 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 chicks butts, and. And that always comes off as, yeah, okay, guys, you're like, you're still, you're still living in 2001 here, but at the same time, it's like kind of a hallmark of the of the series. And doing that in this film is that that they got just enough of it, but like as you say, if they pushed it, it would have been like uh, suggesting you want to be here, don't you? Whereas the the party itself, it comes off as as kind of overwhelming and a little bit obnoxious, not horrible, but then when it cuts to Colin and uh, Nick just quietly on this little platform in the, in the middle of this beautiful uh, uh, island cove, you're like, now that's the kind of party I could get with. Like, it's, like if you're a, an introvert and you see that party, you're like, that is a nightmare. That's my nightmare. Oh, my God. Whereas, you know, just with your friend with, you know, oh, you've got iPads and beer. Okay. <laughs> I don't know about the three of you, but I audibly just sighed and exhaled at that scene yeah like it was it was like it was real when we got to the island i saw the helicopter i was just like oh <laughs> <laughs> and yeah and similarly uh when um uh, they're on the uh what was the name of the uh, the island with the the the, the bridal party? samsara samsara island yeah you've got um sonoya mizuno as araminta uh, who came off like Im- at the airport like the Asian Anna Kendrick she's just immediately <laughs> adorable and then <laughs> when they're having the food scene Im- afterwards and she's just talking to Rachel and again you get that kind of like I really like this person I want to hang out with these people they're kind of like they're personable honest humorous vibrant enthusiastic tactful intuitive smart vital but down to earth people and then so you get that and then you're snatched away and then you're cast with Rachel into the young family household during this this semi-terrifying party where whatever she says will be taken note of by many, many uh, aunties. <laughs> but yeah, so, so on the, uh, the bridal island, it's presented in that kind of this is what ladies like, right? Why? But you've got Rachel there going, ah, yeah, I mean, you know, I like it, but that, like she's having difficulty having the best time of it because she's overwhelmed by a more intense version of something that she doesn't seem like she was way into way back in New York. It, it's it's allowing you to love that kind of thing if you like, but also to sort of like keep it at, at slight arm's length. And uh, so that when the girls come on full 
uh, uh, Mean Girls with her with that fish thing. Uh, oh. it, it's like under those circumstances, Rachel's previously guarded approach feels justified in a tragic way that makes those smiles seem false and hiding threats and it makes it difficult to feel trust in people, which is why it's so important that Astrid comes along. And they don't really make a big deal about it, but Rachel's met Astrid before. She's like the one friend at the party full of strangers that you can talk to. Now that scene with the fish, in the book, it's not Astrid who accompanies her during that bit. It's, uh, who is it, Sophie? Sophie, who is... Colin's sister and Astrid's cousin. Now, when I first saw Sophie, I was like, hang on, Australian accent. Is she actually Amanda in disguise, pretending to be this new character? And it would have been such a great reveal for her to go, aha, it's me, I'm here to ruin you. Um, But that doesn't happen in the book. But what does happen with Astrid being in the film is it connects these two women that we've already heavily invested in and... It allows you to see them, again, doing something kind of like weird, the whole burying the fish. In the book, Rachel wants to make a massive fuss and call security. And Sophie, this girl who just appears and then buggers off again, is the one trying to calm her down. And Sophie's like, no, 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 you don't want to like sh- show them the whites of your eyes. And I'm like, no, the characterization works the other way around. Make it that, Ra- like, it works so well in the film that Rachel's like, no, you know what? I'm not going to make a fuss about this. I'm not going to let them see that they've hurt me. And so she deals with the fish. And I love how this shows her strength and resilience. But the double-edged sword of that, the character flaw, is that it means she's not confronting the conflict, which, of course, she gets over by the end. She has to overcome her fear of that clash and her being humiliated and losing. She can feel a strain pressing down on her and Nick's relationship from the moment she finds out about his wealth. Through the movie, we see her desperately trying not to rock the boat. And what she's up against is so intimidating that the message seems to be, no, fight. Fight for this man. And in other stories, that would be a perfectly acceptable message. But what this film does, that the book definitely doesn't, there isn't even a Mahjong game. She doesn't have that conversation with Eleanor. And the game is exemplary of Rachel's epiphany, which is that what is best for the person she loves is for her to stop fighting. Eleanor comes at her with a fierce jealousy and Rachel proves to be the bigger woman, which inspires Eleanor. It takes her losing him, getting him back and letting him go for her to emerge from this chrysalis as the strong woman she is at the end. Show. 
the way that Rachel is able to handle this, because she has Astrid there, yeah. and, and one of the things that this scene does incredibly importantly is that it brings these two women with different si- different sorts of isolation mm-hmm. together and allows them to share that isolation and therefore make it less. Bingo. Because Astrid at this point is already reeling from the yeah. text message to Exactly. Michael. And that she confesses this to Rachel is again distinct from the book I think in the book she hides it from almost everybody but the the, the Astrid's far more desperate in the book she doesn't have that elegance but but the connection between them is a, a really key part of both of their characters and it also allows Rachel to have this moment of to be surrounded by a crowd of women who hate you Mm. To the po- that don't know you, but hate you to the point where they will do this to you, is completely terrifying. Especially when she's out of her element in this bridal party thing anyway. Exactly. But having one person there that she knows that she already has a bond with, it lets her recover from it slightly. All, and it's almost like a, a precursor to the recovery that she gets with her mother at the end. Mm. So then when you cut to the scene afterwards where she's in the hotel with Nick and she's telling him what happened, which again, in the book, she doesn't, you have this this shift in Rachel's attitude to the whole thing where it goes from being, you know, this was a terrifying experience and I had all these women around who hated me to, oh, wait, hang on a minute, I'm a college professor, I know what stupid, bitchy teenage girls behave like. I can adult this. I can, exactly. I can rise above this. Yeah. Constance Wu brings so much to the table here. They have effectively taken the character of Rachel, broken her down, and built her back up again so much stronger. Same for Gemma Chan as Astrid. And again, that scene where they're burying the fish. One little detail I loved was uh, Astrid... Is it her top? Yes. Okay, yeah. yeah. You tell us, Calvin. So, at the start of the movie, uh, Rachel, with her mum, is, is picking out stuff to wear, and she's like... Should I wear this? And the mom's like, no, blue and white stripes. The thing, you're coming to a funeral. <laughs> Guess what Astrid is wearing in the fish scene? It's blue and white stripes because yeah. it's a funeral. Funeral for a fish. It's so sweet and it's never remarked upon. I love yeah. no. that kind of stuff. Yeah, that gives us the, stuff to this, work This with. is exactly what you were talking about earlier, the level of restraint that the filmmakers are, mm. are pulling right it's yeah. it's like, not just restraint it's respect for the audience yeah. like yes they re- they recognize that we're a smart group and you're going to figure this out or you're not and if you're not it doesn't take anything away yeah yes this exact attitude is exemplified i think uh, in the mahjong scene mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, because we are so used to in western films oh it's chess oh it's poker and they don't explain the rules yeah Right? right, you're just expected to know. But they had the the confidence in their filmmaking to say we're not going to explain the rules of mahjong, which, by the way, I don't know. <laughs> I don't either. Uh, who knows mahjong anyway? It's probably made up like cricket. Um, <laughs> As a British person, I am affronted. No, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> it's just that you know they don't feel the need to explain the rules. They don't need to explain the nuances and subtleties of exactly what's going on. Mm-hmm. But they still packed them in there. Yeah. Like if you know mahjong, you can you can jaw drop at all of the intricacies that they place into that scene mm-hmm. there's a very very good article um that was written by a lady about the scene but there are a lot of little little details in it one of my favorite is that eleanor mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. is sitting in the east mm. position of the table, and Rachel is sitting in the west position. Mm-hmm. And the tiles that they that they use that they play for are also uh, significant and meaningful. Ah. You know, but they, they, you don't need that. You don't need any of that stuff. All you need to know is that oh, she could have won, but she gave it away. It's yeah. sim- it's like sim- it's symbolic to exactly what is happening with the plot and in the dialogue and. It just so happens to be Mahjong, which is so culturally iconic in the same way that poker and chess are to a Western audience. Again, they felt like confident enough to not have to explain the rules. But And if they did explain the rules, that would be pandering as well, right? Because the vast majority of Asian people in Asia who watch this film will know how this works. Yeah, I don't know because I'm a banana, you know. Yeah, I love it. I love I love that it didn't it didn't uh, it had that respect for the audience, it, its Western and its Eastern audience to not do that. Yeah, I really really like, liked that part. Mm. And it bookends the fact that Rachel opens her story with by poker, thrashing yes. somebody yeah. in poker. It's her secret <laughs> yeah. power, yeah. effectively. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, the fact that Rachel sits with her back to the door. That shows a massive amount of confidence. Like, she, what she could be saying to Eleanor with that positioning is, I don't need to be worried about anybody coming in through that door. Everything I'm sizing up against is right in front of me. I don't want to repeat yeah. everything that's in the commentary, because it's a really great commentary to listen to. It's John Chu and Kevin Kwan, the writer of the book. But uh, when it comes to the Mahjong scene, originally they got in a Mahjong expert to plan out the game for them. But then uh, they stalled and got in a second better Mahjong expert to uh, plan out the game for them. <laughs> but then Michelle Yeoh said, no, 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 here's how you do it. And effectively shooed out these two Mahjong uh, experts and then mapped out the Mahjong game. And when it came down to the actual speech of back and forth between uh, the two of them, uh, Michelle Yeoh, who was determined not to play a villain in this, she was just going to fiercely defend her family, uh, was like, right, here is what I would say to her, and I would never allow her to say that to me. And um, Constance Wu uh, came back with, well, uh, here's what I would say to her, and I would never allow her to say that to me. So you've got this real genuine dynamic between these two actors who were obviously intimidated by one another, but in the same kind of like they're both trying to achieve their ends in this fantastic back and forth. And I watched a a Marvel um, video the other day about how the the problem with Marvel's endings being that they tend to be based mostly around a a punch-up with robots. The big bad gets into a fight, and it's like Black Panther could have been more about ideals and more about a... the, the, The dialogue is key in those moments, because you get to like, like bring your characters to the fore. I think a way forward with Marvel is to study this ending and go, could we do an ending where you've still got the action, but the core is in what they say to each other and the conclusions they reach? That's what I always try to do in my books with the writing. It's always got to be about the ideals because there's only so much you can write about he punched him, he punched him back. But Crazy Rich Asians has a masterful ending and it manages to encompass the major aspects of the film in there. Yeah, because the 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 film ends, quote unquote, when he opens the ring box and it's not and it's his mother's ring. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. And then the film is like thirty seconds after that. Then yeah. we roll credits because they understood. Okay, that's it. It's over. The story. We got. We got it. You know, we don't need to. We don't need to belabor any longer. We've got this party. Everyone's happy. We celebrate. It's about you know thirty seconds to a minute. Mm-hmm. That's that's their denouement, and we're done. You know, it's. And because you were you were you were complaining about the 
endings of Marvel films, and I feel exactly the same because we already know what's happening or what's going to happen. Like, is there any doubt that Iron Man is going to lose the final battle? It's not going to happen. <laughs> Which would be why Infinity War hit people so very hard. So the ending is just, you know, dragged out over this five, ten minute action sequence. Mm. Whereas here, it's as something as so small as him opening a box. Yeah. Right. And revealing exactly what has happened. And the context of, of the exchange that has occurred between off screen between him and his mother. And there's there's some serious power in that economy. And I just like it's like you said, I really I really agree. I really wish more films would work hard on just getting there faster, you know, we don't need things stretched out so often. Yeah. Just, just, and having an ending that is very up. resoundingly about what the film is about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah. And the, yeah, definitely. the opening of that ring box and the reveal of Eleanor's ring, one of the beauties of that moment for me is that, as you say, Calvin, that is the the defining end of the story of the conflict between various characters and what that ring reveal shows you is everybody won except Amar but Eleanor won because her relationship with Nick can now start to be repaired Mm. Nick won because he gets to maintain his relationship with his mother and be with the woman that he loves. Mm. And Rachel won because she got to be with Nick, but she got to be with Nick on her own terms. Yeah. There's a, a, scene, a key scene in the deleted uh, sections of the movie that's on the uh, Blu-ray, which was removed because it's during the musical montage sequence, round about the heart hands moment, uh, and it's, yeah. it's Nick talking to Eleanor, and, yeah. uh, uh, you know, obviously, to, to, to Nick... Eleanor used her um, contacts to find out this dirty secret of uh, Rachel and drove her away. And he's distraught and doesn't know how to reconnect to his mother. And it's done brilliantly in the film with just no words at all. They just stand on the balcony and Michelle Yeoh's body language, she's nervous of her son. Henry has got this... I don't know what to feel about you look on his face, but the actual discussion that takes place there, they they talk, and she talks about why she gave him away to Arma, the grandmother. You have to know I had my reasons. You took part the woman I love. Love is a feeling. The feelings pass. But our family... It's always about our family. Everything I think and do is for our family. But why does it mean that I lose the person that makes me the happiest that I've ever been? Sometimes you have to make hard decisions. Please, stop. No, it's not just for our family. It's for all those families that depend on us and our work. This is not something you can walk away from. You have no idea what your father and I have done for you. What I've sacrificed. Like giving me up to Amar. I can live with her hating me, but I didn't want that hate to touch you. I did it so you can have everything. I didn't ask for that. You didn't have to. What I needed was you. Have you ever asked yourself that?
You never said anything. I know what it feels like to give something up. After all those years apart, can you stand there and honestly tell me that it was worth it? It's worth noting that that animosity from Arma, for this daughter-in-law she disapproved of, is precisely what Eleanor has transposed upon Rachel. Which is why what Rachel's just done has floored her, because she's done exactly the same thing. She's let Nick go for his benefit. Only it's worse for Rachel, because she has effectively removed herself from Nick's life forever. And that's got... Eleanor's brain whirring. The untouchable queen has been touched. And that cast Eleanor... Like, I, I looked very carefully when I watched it again. Nick actually kind of sort of explains that just after the uh, you will never be good enough scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, he kind of, like, in a shorthand way, sort of says, oh, well, my mother this, and, and she gave me away to armor. But in a kind of, yes, I, I know all this way. But it, it's in a weird car sequence where it's clear that Rachel's been thrown and has not told Nick the extent of how... Uh, you know, how much Eleanor just completely tore her to pieces. But that scene, that missing scene, I love that I've now seen it because I now know that that's the case. It deepens Eleanor's character. It allows us to see the commonality between those two in a much more stark way. You, It's there in the film, but this clarifies it. Yeah, I caught that the first time through and uh, really appreciated it because she even calls that out during the Mahjong gang. Uh, Rachel yeah. says, uh, says, I didn't want him to lose his mother again. Again, mm-hmm. yeah. And, and again, that, they don't and, go into that, but yeah. Right. Because they don't need that. They allow you to infer. There's a, there's a lot of allowing the audience to interpret stuff, which is, you know, great for us because that's what we do. I really appreciated that. The, like, even the just the the reveal of Eleanor's ring at the end mm-hmm. that uh, like Sharon was talking about, the a lesser movie would have there would have been dialogue there, you know, where Rachel would have exclaimed, oh, "That's your mother's ring!" And you know, <laughs> yes, I, she's okay. And, of me. <laughs> yeah, and and I'm so I'm so it's so refreshing to mm-hmm. see a film just. Be confident enough in the story and in the script that to know that the audience will get it and mm-hmm. to know that they will they will react the way that they want to. And I fucking cry every goddamn time that mm-hmm. scene comes up. Oh, yeah. Same. Understandably. Same. The first time I saw it's, the film actually was at the premiere and there were tall people in front of me and I actually missed what Eleanor's ring looked like. Oh, no. Oh, no. It's so Michelle when, Yeoh's actual ring. She brought it to the set. She was like, right, this is the one you use. <laughs> Fair enough. No, but you know, in the scene where they're making dumplings, that's where you see her ring, right? And I didn't yeah. see it. Yeah. I missed it. So at the end, when he opens when he opens the ring on a plane, I'm like, wait, that's not the same ring. Mm. And I was like, wait, there, <laughs> no. were close, there were close-up of Michelle Yeoh's hand. Is that her ring? But I didn't know for gotcha. sure. Like, oh. yeah. That is a blink-and-you'll-miss-it moment. The, the no. dumpling scene is really important because it, it's the great leveler. It, 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 takes, like, it is a, a, a Chinese tradition and it's ve- like, it doesn't matter how rich you are, 
dumplings are very important. You, you just, you know, to be able to have the whole family sat around the table, these multi generations. You get Astrid sat next to her mother, who was in the early scene in the hotel, uh, and her mother yeah. turns up a couple of times as well. But it's nice to be able to yeah. sit them together, and so you got that connection between them, and um, and you know, just just making dumplings, but allowing the kids to kind of back chat their parents. It's a key scene for the generational conflict to be you know to play itself out and to show that the, the the two perspectives from the older and the younger it's i love this scene Just, I just realized that uh, I was quite sweary right there in that last bit. Do you want me to do that line again without the f bomb? No, no, we can swear. We can, we can swear okay. at least All once. Right. All right. Yeah, I'll well, cover your fucking this party. Is a PG-13 podcast. Yeah. You get one f. <laughs> <laughs> now, the one f in the movie was voiced by Aquafina, uh, who so we good. haven't mentioned Pecklin really yet. She's I like miss a her so much. What was she I like miss in her person? So... Uh, okay. So obviously the the high okay Ken 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 Jong was like this as well. <laughs> that really high energy on screen persona is something that they turn on for the screen. Right. They're just both really really nice. I call her Nora. She asked me to call her Nora, so it's very weird to call her Aquafina. I was like, <laughs> oh hi, I'm Nora. You know, yeah, okay, that's nice. Uh, are you, are you have you been in any other words? She's like, yeah, I'm in an oceans movie. I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so Nora was very very nice. We hung out only a little bit, usually in the car on the way to and from set. Uh, I met her at the container ship th- that day. Like she was getting out of a of, of a Lamborghini, and she was like, they let me drive the Lambo, and I'm like, oh, okay, that's nice. <laughs> it's nice to meet you. Wait, what? Was she like? You will never be good enough for my son. Or was it like you? You will never be good enough for my son. It's like the second one, um, except for in a way that made me want to like cry and puke at the same time. God, she's so badass. You know, I bet if you told her you'd leave Nick for like a million dollars, she will write that check. They do that around here. She looked at me like I was nothing. Like a ten million dollar check. I, I feel like she would do that. I don't even know what I should do. I mean, I can't even tell Nick because he like worships her. Yeah, Chinese sons think their mom's Bart Chanel number five. What about the ama? She hate your face too. Okay, nobody said they hated my face. And ama, she liked my face. She said I had a lucky nose. That's great. You know, Eleanor can hate you all day long, but she can't be two thousand years of Chinese filial piety. I feel like I shouldn't even go to the wedding. You know, it's Colin and Araminta's day. I don't want to cause any drama there. I feel like I should just sit it out. You know, tell Nick I had food poisoning or something. What? That's bullshit. You're just scared. I'm not. Okay. Here's what you need to understand. 
all right? It's not about getting Eleanor to like you. It's about getting her to respect you, all right? Right now, she just thinks you're some, like, undeserving, clueless, gold-digging... Yeah, I got it. ...trashy, unrefined banana. Yellow on the outside, white on the inside. I know what a banana is. When, in reality, you're, like, a super sophisticated, smart professor of frickin' game theory. Show her that side of you, you know? You're right. Damn straight, I'm right. Spike Lynn, I'm always right. Yeah, she's like trying to play a game of chicken with me. Where she's like coming at me and like thinking I'm gonna swerve like a chicken. But you can't swerve. I'm not gonna swerve, not for her. No, chickens are bitches, dude. And I'm not a chicken. You're not a chicken. You gonna roll up to that wedding. You gonna be like, bok, bok, bitch. Bok, bok, bitch. Chickens are bitches. <laughs> Sorry, uncle. I love how she calls that old fellow at his balcony uncle. That's a uh, sign of respect. As crazy and stylized as Pecklin is, Aquafina still makes everything feel organic. She has a grounding effect on, on the uh, film in that uh, she feels ve- like they make it clear she's you know was educated in America and it feels like she's brought a lot of that back with her. And so she's a little bit of a fish out of water herself. So it's like if for the Americans watching the film, you could sort of like go, OK, right, here is a tiny little island that I can grab hold of. <laughs> and uh, so she'll kind of like walk you, you through the thing. In the, uh, in the book, no one knows who Nick is because the... Um, uh, that the, the young youngs are so secret, secret no one knows about who they are it's kind of like the, the, the hitman agency and hitman but yeah. um, in, in the film it's like everyone's jaw drops the moment everyone, that, that anyone mentions Nick but she contextualizes and like they've even like they created that map bag so that she could kind of point to it and, and, and you know, <laughs> point out where Singapore stands in, oh in, in God, the world so so good it was, it was yeah. elegantly and excellently uh, put across but again just like her offhand dialogue which I can guarantee most of it wasn't scripted from what you're saying regarding you know oh, what no, the lines it was not there. it yeah. was not you know all you know the all the all the bits at dinner with Ken and, mm-hmm. and Aquafina basically were not scripted of course all the comedy all the comedy bits yeah. anyway she, she reminded me like, like of a, a young Joan Rivers as well like uh, uh, <laughs> especially like the way she walks when she gets out of the car and sort of totters to the um uh, uh, the, the front to to get out her various outfits hidden in under the hood um, that was a very Joan Rivers walk. I didn't yeah. occur, didn't make that connection until you just said it. But yeah, now I'm never going to unsee that. Thanks, Alex. A lot of her lines and um, oh, what's his name? The Rainbow Sheep of the Family. What's oh, his character's uh, name? Oliver. Sorry? Oliver, yeah. Nico Santos' character. A lot of uh, Nora's lines, a lot of Nico's lines, a lot of Ken's lines are improv. Like, yeah. you can just tell. You know? You, you, yeah. you can just tell, like, they were just riffing... And eventually we'll just take one. I mean, all of my lines were riffs. I mm. told you, in the script, I had nothing. Yeah. So yeah. that's the, uh, the... Again, this is... I keep coming back to Michael Bay, but it's like John M. Chu is the, is the, the angel version of Michael Bay. Michael Bay likes to just let his actors run their mouths and his ability to select what they say is the opposite of comedy to me. It's always offensive. Yeah. Uh, or, or just like, oh God, just stop this right now, please. Um, but it's it's the same principle, effectively. It's just you've got a different ear and a different eye and a different ability to go, well, that was really good. That'll play well. But if you can do that as a director, if you can trust your actors and if you've cast them right, then you can trust them. Yeah. And And between the... The ability of this of the people who worked on this film to cast the right people for the right roles, mm. 
and Calvin from the sounds of things, they picked the right role for you. So yeah. that that suggests that they 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 know what they're talking about. <laughs> they then have this selection of people who can behave in a very authentic way and get the characters across in a, a way that is sincere and convincing without ever feeling stagey and artificial. The intersection of that Venn diagram, by the way, Ken Jeong, because he oh, was yeah, in Transformers 3. Transformers. So in this, you've got uh, his, you know, I'm, I'm kidding, I went to Cal State, um, and in Transformers 3, it's deep wang, deep wang, you're not getting it. And it's like, yeah, okay, fair enough, mm-hmm. cool, job. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just not fun. I actually, I actually, what you were saying earlier about casting, I actually asked John, mm-hmm. Towards the end of our filming, we were we were on the filming the party scene. You know, the very last party at mm-hmm. the end with the synchronized swimmers and the big band and all that. Mm-hmm. We were we were there and we, and we were setting up. And I just asked him, like, "Can I be? Can I ask you a question?" I was like, "Why did you cast me in this movie? I just feel like my energy is just so different from everyone else." And he mm-hmm. was like, "Yeah, that's exactly it. It's because your energy is so different from everyone else. Like you just." He said he told me uh, in not so many words that I he wanted me to bring a different level to the film mm-hmm. and I didn't get it until I saw the film like ah okay I'm actually really funny uh, <laughs> my, because because I was just I was just doing it like deadpan like I was just doing it sort of as myself but a little bit more mm. um, so I wasn't sure what was funny about it and then I watched it and I was like oh I see it's because it's because contrast is hilarious exactly yeah, yeah, yeah. it's that exactly. simplicity surrounded by all of this excess is so yeah. gorgeous to watch. Yeah, no, it's great. There's a, a bit at the beginning which everyone uh, um, seemed, seemed to really relish, the social networking bit. And I don't think I've seen Twitter used in quite such a way in, in a movie before. Two major Asian cast films came out last year. Actually, I was going to make minor. that same comparison. Yeah. You're going for searching? Yeah, I was going for searching. Searching is how it's done with how you bring yes. um, computers to the screen and go, this is actually how things are. But the Twitter one, while it was very stylized, was like, this is how something goes viral in seconds. Mm-hmm. And like that whole sequence plays out, and then the aunties at the uh, Bible reading happen to know about Nick Young's date before they've even left the restaurant back in New York. <laughs> that was masterful. And, uh, yeah. you know, it's so much fun to be able to sort of, like, show... Like, e- even though there's that kind of spiteful thing, there's so much stuff going on. I think uh, John M. Chu's baby child was in one of the memes. <laughs> so, yeah. But that, oh that was... It's also terrifying. I mean, the CIA have nothing on these guys. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. It's, it's funny that you call that out, because I actually even have in my notes here, I have the Radio 1 Asia visualization is brilliant, reminded me of searching. Yeah. <laughs> the actor who plays Radio 1 Asia, her name is Constance, mm-hmm. funnily enough. Ah. Uh, yeah, she's nice. I miss her. I miss uh, Fiona, from um, who plays Kitty Pong. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just want to say one thing about Fiona. Fiona is honestly the nicest person I've ever met. Oh, oh, that's good. <laughs> yeah, because because she plays Kitty Pong and she plays Kitty Pong very very well. Mm-hmm. And Fiona herself got an air of like you know 
clubby girl, mm. which is fine, you know. But actually, she's super nice. I really, really <laughs> like Fiona. Like, yeah, I really want to hang out with her again. I should try and arrange that because she lives in Singapore. Oh, nice. Okay, anyway, there, yeah, there, there. Aside, aside. Continue, okay. please. Uh, Astrid, uh, we're gonna, uh, we're going to talk about Astrid now. Um, she. You you could feasibly lift Astrid's whole story out of this uh, film. It would be less for it, but it would still function. But Astrid's story strengthens the th- the core of what's going through. So, uh, like, I'm going to give this to the group. What what why did why is Astrid so key as a character? But it's so important to keep her kind of in the background, like her things going on as well. Apart from the very obvious answer, which is sequel hook, but yes, go on. Yes. <laughs> I think that the relationship between Astrid and Michael mm. serves as kind of a dark mirror or, or like a, a potential dark future of what Rachel and Nick uh, could have in yeah. the sense that we're watching, we're watching what happens when a you know, someone who wasn't brought up in this world is thrust into it and doesn't adjust. So it gives us that little bit of tension, like, um, you know, like, is this is this what's going to happen with the two of them? How is this going to go? Because we know it kind of gives us a hint of what's at stake or what what's at risk. Yeah. I, w- I want to bring up something Sharon said earlier, which was she said that Nick is an incredibly emotionally intelligent and um, emotionally open person, which Michael is not. Like the yeah. own, the whole reason that he, that he, that he failed to be in that marriage, and the reason that he was a bad husband is because he couldn't open up about his insecurities mm-hmm. to his wife. Yeah, you know, yeah. You know, she was that's, aware that's, of that's, them. That's the thing. Like she knows he's, you know, jittery about the idea of of her her spending money. Mm-hmm. Um, at, because not because it's like oh you're spending a finite amount that we have, but just because you have it and I don't. Yeah. And, and he's and always like a, a have not in a world of haves. Absolutely. And she responds to his hiding his emotional response to the situation by mirroring him and hiding, hiding the it. things she buys. Yeah. There's a, a great, lovely little tiny piece of physical acting when uh, the guy who plays Michael who is... Pierre Peng. Uh, yeah, Pierre Peng uh, as, as Michael Taylor. Um, he's talking to Astrid on the first things he, he does when he enters he puts his hand behind his back in a fist and it's it's a little bit of a nod to his military background but it also shows he's got something to hide. Like he's not even yeah. holding something behind his back. It's just... Yeah, he's just doing it, yeah. He's just doing it <laughs> subconsciously. Just, yep. the, the physical acting in this film acting they're just there's so many and it's so understated in so many times like that that you can like sort of watch and just little glances i've got a whole thing i'm going to be talking about regarding the church scene i'm saving that to near the end because it's huge but that's loaded and it's it's a lot of inference on my part but the point is that the filmmakers and the actors have loaded the chamber for these scenes so that because you get the premise and the setup you can interpret payoff even if it wasn't intentional you can you can get lots of you know nourishing little details and it seems like the the actors really knew their characters and developed them even if they were developing them as we saw them like you know <laughs> as written on the page there wasn't a lot to a lot of these characters i'm sure later on in the in the the sequel books they they he gives them more dimensionality but like I said, Astrid's a lot more desperate in the book. There's something so much more regal about the way that Gemma Chan plays this version of Astrid. 
And just little details like the earrings she chooses to spend a million dollars on are for a princess who coronated herself and became a queen. They were worn by Queen Subiella at her self-anointed coronation in 1878. How much? Lauren would have mentioned this in our Guillermo del Toro shows. Those earrings <laughs> are Astrid's character personified, and she hides them on the top of a mirror and doesn't go back to them to the end of the movie when she coronates herself and leaves. Mm-hmm. And you love that final line, don't you? Uh, it, well, not the final line of the whole film, but her her line when Michael says that he's going to leave, and she says, "Well, no, you paid for this apartment. This is your apartment. We'll go." And he's, "Where will you stay? Where are you going to live?" Well, I own fourteen apartment buildings, probably in one of those. And it's it's just it's like ah uh, the the, the sheer capability. Anymore. Absolutely, this is her, you know, unveiled, unapologetic. This is what, it's not even just about what she has. The fact that she is resourceful and is able to walk out of there. It's, it's like, I will survive encapsulated in a single line. Oh. It's, not even, it's not even that. Like, how can he even ask that question? He's her husband. Right. He, yeah, knows he knows this. He knows she's got all of that. Exactly. <laughs> Simpler answer. He just conditions himself to believe that, you know, in that very male way that she needs him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's got the idea of a very traditional uh, uh, male yeah. f- male dominant marriage in his head, yeah. and he knows he knows that ain't working because he's always on the back foot throughout the film. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's also noteworthy. That's your own fault, dude. Yeah. <laughs> it's also noteworthy that this is a film where they make the male Asian form super desirable. There's oh, yes. the scene where uh, Michael comes in and he's just had a shower and like uh, uh, you know it's like. Specimen, and then um, like the, the next morning, where uh, where Nick is like, oh, and then my shirt came off, and then at the party later, he's like, oh, my shirt came off again. It's <laughs> that that scene. We were watching that just now, and that scene where uh, Rachel has spilt wine on Nick's shirt, and he has to go upstairs and change. The way that is framed, with Michelle Yeoh sat on the bed in the background, and Henry Golding is like foreground, right in front of the camera. Here is my chest. Again, it's like a Marvel movie because. Because they make those films with the female gaze in mind, and it is—it's incredibly refreshing to see that as, as a kind of a hey. Oh, by the way, girl, look at that body. Girl, look at that body. Girl, look at that body. I, I, I work out. That and they made, took out the female butts too. Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. Nice reversal. I, I do think a little bit of that though is is almost a a retort to a fairly stereotypical view in Hollywood that you don't cast Asian men as leads because they're, they're not, not sexy. sexy. What? <laughs> what planet are you on? So, so yeah, it's uh, it, it, that was one of their remits was, uh, yeah, that's in the same way that Aquaman, it, throughout the film, the remit was, oh, yeah, all of those things that you said were silly, like he talks to fish, by the end of the film, you're going to be like, he talks to the most awesome fish. <laughs> so it's, it's just, it's there to dispel myths and just reset the, uh, the terms. And uh, everyone who listens to this show will know that I love Marvel movies and I critiqued their endings because I want them to be better. But it also, when watching Henry Golding work in this, and this, the weird thing was, I then watched 
uh, a simple favour the next day. I'd never seen Henry <laughs> Golding in anything, and then suddenly I saw him in two movies in a row. Well, and, he's never been in anything, yeah. Alex. This was his first movie. And then his second movie. Uh, I so know. Dude's got range. And it made I me was think. Lord. Uh, made me think about Marvel. And I said this on the quick review, but just for those who don't ha- have access to my Patreon Henry Golding as Namor. You know, since we were talking about Aquaman, like, Marvel are going to be like, okay, so there's all this money on the table for some sort of Atlantean prince. You get a guy who is capable of being incredibly appealing and sexy, but also has an edge to him and could also be like, you don't want to piss this guy off. And he doesn't necessarily have to be quite as brosome as Jason Momoa, because you can't, you can't really. But at the same time, like, that's how you do Namor, and that way you also have a major Asian hero in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And you don't go, we've got Shang-Chi. Yeah, we know we've that Bruce Lee knockoff from the 70s, and you didn't, didn't think to create any more Asian heroes, but uh, it, it would make absolute sense. And also, Henry Golding fits with the Marvel sensibility. He has a natural sense of humor about him and an edge to him. He'd be great. He's charming as hell. Oh, yeah. And again, what you said about the emotional uh, maturity. There's a scene that's not in the book immediately following the fish funeral uh, where it's getting them back together. And in the film, this scene was almost cut. It's where she sort of unloads about, you know, the stresses she's been through over, uh, over the weekend. And he meets her in the middle and reassures her. But... It wasn't in the book, and like these two barely meet each other th- in their own separate adventures. But this is like a really important getting everything back together, so that Rachel can feel like, okay, maybe things will be all right. But she's already been hurt, and then when she com- goes along, and the, the next thing on the agenda is the uh, making dumplings, and the you will never be enough, which apparently in the actual filming just destroyed Constance. Like, they could only do it a few times, and they couldn't, like, do the whole scene all the way over because uh, every time uh, Michelle Yeoh would say that to her and just hold her face and then walk away, she'd just start crying because it just cuts so deep. It's got this elemental, disapproving parent energy to it, but also this, like, get-out-of-my-family feel to it, which is just... It's murderous. it's yeah. such an intense scene. The way they blocked it with the stairs. Oh, yeah. Oh, genius. Yeah. One person's not in this. I was really surprised when we were reading the book and it's like, oh, he's just there. Nick's dad. Nick's father's mentioned repeatedly. And it feels like there's this ghost of a father there. And it's really important that you don't get to see Nick's father and you don't get to see Rachel's father. And that does something to the chemistry of the film because it's about the matriarchs of the family and it's about the potential wives of the family there's so much there's an absence of a powerful male paternal figure throughout it made me really hope that in the sequels they're going to deal with that a lot like for both of them because they've got to square that away from them so the first film's about mothers second film's about fathers and and i would also hope for a a lengthy pt uh subplot (laughs) oh please Uh, if someone could start a writing campaign to warner brothers that would be great (laughs) pt solo movie so (laughs) the star of crazy rich asians is back and he's leaving singapore behind to bring heart hands to the world 
this is how it's gonna be. If you disclose the fact that you've never had sex before and they dump you, you want them to dump you. You do. Because they've just removed themselves from the equation. You're not the problem. Maybe you need to talk to him and make him understand that that's not how it works. Am I being jealous? Am I insecure? How do I do this best? I love you. P.T. I'm dangerous. Spin off. <laughs> Nina, Nina Jacobson, the producer of the film, was saying like she really, really wants to. I don't know how she's going to get it made, but she wants to make a spin-off about mm-hmm. the Go family. Oh, of course. TV, a TV series called Going to L.A. Oh, nice. Oh, brilliant. wow. <laughs> <laughs> Another fish out of water thing. And it's like, how do we deal with this? I mean, Absolutely. I went to Caltech, but it was so long ago. <laughs> okay. I think the absence of... Nick's father, it it does give you that parallel between Nick and Rachel in that their fathers are both primarily absent from their lives. But I think, again, the way the film uses relationships as mirrors for each other, and uh, like you said, the, the Michael and Astrid relationship is kind of this dark mirror of where Rachel and... Nick could end up. You've also got the parallel of Alistair and Kitty's relationship. That's how a lot of people perceive Rachel, that she's this gold digger who, as soon as she's introduced to somebody who has more money, will be after that instead. And the, the absence of Mr. Young... It's almost a warning that if Nick is drawn back into this family and he does end up becoming the head of the business, which is what they want for him, mm. that's going to be him. Rachel can love him all she wants and she can overcome the, the resistance of her family all she wants. Her reward will be to have a husband who's away on business all the time and she never gets to see. Mm. Yeah, Another... I'm, pretty sure that, I'm pretty sure that's intentional. Mm. And I hope that it's something that they do deal with, like the pressures of actually being married, yeah. which is something that the rom-coms never really... Like the rom-coms, oh, they get together, they're happy now. The wedding and, is the end, or yeah. maybe the baby, if there's a sequel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, they haven't gotten married yet. Yeah. Yeah, so it that's something... It could all still that's... go horribly wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And they've already diverged several in several key ways from the book, so uh, I, I'm, yeah. I'm very interested to see what they do. There's Arma, who was actually in Joy Luck Club. What, uh, that's, she uh, was. Grandmother. Yeah, um, she was. She was uh, honestly, by the way, if, if you loved Crazy Rich Asians, it's worth watching Joy Luck Club to get that more diverse view of traditional Chinese upbringings. This is obviously, it's, it's set in the 90s, and it goes back a long way into the 20th century and a lot of flashbacks to Chinese women. And it's, it's really harsh. There, were, there, were, there was a, a point of the film I was like, whoa, I could have done with some warning about that. There's a lot of stuff which blindsides you. But again, it's it's difficult to watch that and then come back to Crazy Rich Asians and go, oh, poor baby, because there's some hardship in Joy Luck. Uh, obviously, there, there are a lot of stories to tell. But um, the woman who played uh, Ama in this, so Lisa Liu, grandmother, the matriarch, she's hardly in it. But the way she appears at the first time, you are with Rachel. You're like, oh, you're a sweet, snowy-haired old lady. I hope you're as nice as you look. And... She kind of is for a little while, and then the the moment that the, uh, the 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 filthy truth, which by the way Rachel had no goddamn idea about, uh, comes yeah. to light. She's like Shang Tsung at the top of the mountain, and it turns out that Eleanor was Goro all along. She's she doesn't have that 
ability to just like cast Rachel down in the same way. Like she she has her own power, but ultimately it's like all of the power comes up to this this matriarch. Again, what I said, there is a very, very strong female energy in this film, which I love. But there's no resolution with armor. You'll notice there's no kind of like we have to win armor over. It's it's kind of like okay, as long as we're in with Goro. <laughs> I did I did kind of get the feeling at the end though with the the handing over of Eleanor's ring mm-hmm. and the fact that this was this was the start of a new era in the family. Because did that was that previously Alma's ring? No, that's ah. the she wouldn't give them her ring. Of course, Philip had to have his own made right. to propose to Eleanor. But the fact that that's the ring that gets handed down, it's. This is a horrible thing to say, but I did kind of get the feeling that the underlying hint is, okay, we're just going to wait for that generation to die off and then we'll move on. (laughs) Which is a fairly strong statement about the intergenerational conflict. It's like at certain points, elderly... Like, elderly traditions are holding back the future. And there is, to be fair, a layer in the book which is not in the film where Suyi talks about her own father and the fact that he had the power to accept or reject his own children. And I think she says that he had six children altogether to to his wives. He had multiple wives and several concubines. Mm. And of of the six children that his wives bore him, he only actually accepted three of them into the family. Mm. To have that level of of power of exile is so wrong and the the power of exile that she has is like a mitigated form of that and then the power of exile that Eleanor has is a mitigated form of that and the idea that these these injustices that are part of an older tradition an older era are being gradually diluted Mm. over the generations yeah so it does the, the the film does have a respect for tradition, but it is very much a two hander, as in it's like it's it's got one foot in the past, but it's also stepping forwards. Well, I think it's in part it's like that old joke about the the um, the person who cuts the ends off the joint before she puts it in the oven. <laughs> And then, and when she get asked why she did it, she's well, like, "That's my how my mother always used to do it." So she, then she goes and asks her mother why she did it. Well, I always did it because my grandmother used to do it. And then the, when they ask her, it was a, well, we only had a tiny roasting tin, so I had to cut both ends off to fit it in. <laughs> and it's it's that it has that feeling of tradition is not in and of itself bad, and it's not in and of itself good. But we need to examine these traditions. Mm. Why are we doing them? Are they healthy are they strengthening for the family or are they ultimately harmful and then address them Mm. as such are any of you familiar with the uh singer comedian tim minchin yes oh yes oh yeah so he has uh, one of my favorite of his songs which is not a comedy song but it's also coincidentally one of the only christmas songs i enjoy oh white wine in the sun white wine in the sun yeah and there's a line in that song that I always go to when these types of, you know, tradition things come up. And it's uh, it's I don't go in for ancient wisdom. I don't believe just because ideas are tenacious, it means that they're worthy. Mm. And uh, I find that to be very powerful in situations like this when you're talking about like, well, why are we doing the things that we're doing just because it's the way that they've always been done and that's not a good reason for it we need to examine these traditions I don't go in for ancient wisdom I don't believe just because ideas are tenacious it means that they're worthy 
get freaked out by churches Some of the hymns that they sing have nice chords But the lyrics are dodgy And yes, I have all of the usual objections To the miseducation of children Who in tax-exempt institutions Are taught to externalize blame And to feel ashamed And to judge things as plain right or wrong But I quite like the songs and rather than asking Rachel about her uh, uh, past and history, they, uh, Eleanor reveals it in this kind of aha way, uh, which destroys Rachel and the party goes sour. So you've got this, you know, fantastic wedding reception that was previously, you know, this like jubilant fl- 30s flapper, th- 20s flapper thing going on. And just the slight turn means that every it's poisoned and everybody around it just seems you know, decadent and shallow. And so you mm-hmm. get that outsider perspective of you people have no idea what pain I'm going through, which is always the tightrope you walk with this kind of movie when you are introducing the pain of people who are, as I said earlier, insulated to a lot of the troubles of the world. And... And we finally get to that moment, but it feels very, very real because we are so on side with Rachel at that point. And she has been, and as we are, thrust away from this group. Mm-hmm. And that's when uh, her mother reappears. And again, this this mother figure, like, th- I think in the book she was you know, into real estate, but the way she's positioned in the film, she's very kind of down to earth and, and uh, like, it seems like she just would have a, a, a relatively normal, relatable mom job. Well, the significance is the, the close connection between Rachel and her mother as compared to the distance that exists between Nick and yeah. his mother. And it's uh, it's so quiet and intimate and not pushy and there's this like when she sees her and she's so happy to see her rather than just what are you doing here it's it's like she is exactly <laughs> who Rachel needed at that point which is again you've got this this wonderful little little nudge from Nick um and again we go back to food because the first thing she gives her is uh, is tea and uh, yeah. tea and yeah. chicken soup and and yeah uh, double I think it was uh, mentioned in the commentary it's double boiled chicken soup for whenever you're uh, feeling low or ill which yeah. uh, Eleanor point. actually mentioned she's going to have uh, some soup sent to uh, Nick's room so she's like they yeah. they share that it's just that they approach it in different ways yeah. like I'll have it I'll a, have the cook make you some I'll, hot chocolate. I'll have the hook cook, like she's like no no I cook this myself mm-hmm. and and here it's going to be but the they're still showing that nurturing, I want to make sure that you at least drink this soup for their child. Mm. Wonderful. This scene was going to be played out over multiple hours and multiple locations. They were going to get on pedal boats at one point, but it was just too noisy. And they just kept it in the bedroom and kept it just between a mother and daughter. And it's so intimate and so winning. And again, it takes things that are part of big soap opera dramas about family secrets and, and shames and things, but it makes them all bearable. Like, you know, these, these awful things happen, but the important thing is the now and that I have you and that you have me. And it's it, that, again, it's impossible to watch that part of the film and not feel this is a, a family dynamic that is right, that feels like this is what mothers should do for their daughters. And the honesty of it as well, the painful, painful honesty. Because this is something that she clearly has wrestled with talking to her about for her entire life, but just hasn't been able to. So it's like a dam bursting. 
definitely very cathartic for a lot of Asian people as well who do not have necessarily the most open relationships with their parents. I use yeah. that word specifically because we have we often have very good relationships with our parents. We like them a lot. We just don't talk to them. Ever? Can't share the can't share the darker, more uh, upsetting things. No, you just can't share that. really anything because, like, it's just not done. Yeah. Having grown up in a family where the yeah. the you don't air your dirty laundry in public and you don't share those those deeper feelings, that was something that I really really connected with. Can I insert one more thing Absolutely. about uh, uh, Nick's dad? Yeah. So. The fact that he's lifted completely out of this uh, out of this movie, I think, serves a really important function in that in in the book, he's he's very much on Rachel's side. Like he likes her and he kind of acts as a bit of a foil for Eleanor. And by removing kinda that like pride piece, and prejudice. Yeah. Oh, Mr. Bennett! And by removing that piece, it ratchets up the tension between between uh the two women because she doesn't have anybody in that like in that immediate nuclear family she doesn't have anybody on her side it's it's her against the whole family whereas if philip were still in the in the picture it would be her and philip and nick against Eleanor and Eleanor would almost seem outnumbered in that yeah. in that situation then. So this way it's very much Eleanor is this big intimidating presence and Rachel has to face her head on effectively alone. Again in the book she doesn't even meet Eleanor until the wedding reception. Mm-hmm. Like there's there's all of this like stuff going on it's like are you gonna meet eleanor at any point and it just doesn't happen it, it's it's weird She's to go busy. to the book after the film yeah it, it you've mentioned it before and we kind of talked about it on twitter a little bit but like i enjoyed the book but every decision they made when adapting the screenplay was the right decision that there's one bit that made us go whoa which was at the wedding araminta uh, is you know we're like oh we love you Araminta and she walks down uh, you know uh, the aisle and looks wonderful and she's been Anna Kendrick this whole film but in the book she's like uh, thinking to herself oh fucking Astrid could have worn a different dress stupid bitch and it's like are you kidding me Kevin you maniac we're supposed he, he to like made, this girl he kind of made everybody a little bit shitty yeah all the, except Nick Nick always comes off as just like oh except he's Nick. this swell guy. Which is Nick great, and Rachel, because Nick's great. But uh, again, look, Rachel, a lot of the stuff that was brought to it was was um, Constance Wu and decisions of the film to really flesh out the Rachel character because she's not really the audience POV character so much in the book because we're jumping between these crazy rich Asians and she's just one of the plots. She's like, there's an overall plot of she's getting together with Nick, but let's not spend too much time with her. I'm going to talk about the wedding now. Taking place in a church decorated to resemble the wild jungle that Singapore was before its colonial occupation. It's rather important that the current rich Asian class are living in the homes of the previous white European settlers. This central scene holds so much that it took several viewings for me to take it all in. 
First of all, after the fun dress-up session that feels like trying on your best friend's outfits only much fancier, Rachel lays her chief rival, Amanda, aside. She never really stood a chance of winning Nick, this is Amanda, and she clearly is so horrible that it was never going to work, but her machinations were threatening enough to unsettle Rachel pretty badly, leaving her exposed enough that Eleanor was able to lance her through the heart with, You will never be enough. So Rachel marching past Amanda with, you're in my way, feels like a small but significant triumph. This isn't a beatdown, though. It's an ongoing conflict with many parties involved. Rachel is able to face down Eleanor inside the church, but she is rejected, even in her politeness, with a quiet yet defiant buck-buck to show that she isn't a chicken. She selects a place beside the solitary princess, something that nobody else would think to do, but it's not a move of trying to curry favour or of ignorance of knowing who this person is. She knows who she's talking to, and she specifically invokes the princess's recent interview talking about microloans for women and women supporting economy. So there is a ton of progressive energy on screen at this new triumph, which is noted by Eleanor and her cronies. They had mentioned, by the way, that this wedding cost $40 million. You could buy 40 earrings for that. So the Which is ma- more than the film costs, <laughs> just a small point. So the one and a half Henry Cable mustaches. <laughs> So the mention of women taking out microloans juxtaposes fantasy wealth with achievable reality. Nick and Colin talking quietly from the front. Their their masculine, mature rapport is once again strengthened, reminding us what a decent man is. Bernard turns up with a nutshot and a shitty, emasculating comment to remind us what a decent man isn't. Then a bunch of cute page boys walk up the aisle and Nick greets them in an adorably genuine fashion, making it abundantly clear he's going to be a great dad someday, possibly reminding some that his own father isn't here. But adding to Rachel's melancholy... Kina Grana starts up with her cover of Falling in Love With You. Rachel looks at Nick sadly, and the many, many emotions that I'm about to articulate start to swirl. We get the connection between her and Nick here, hard. It's mirrored in the beautifully attired Araminta and Colin, deeply apparent just in the way they look at one another. Water floods the hall, traditionally symbolizing emotion. Now, it's impossible to be certain of this one because the wedding is described mainly down to the detail of the surroundings in the book, and it's wordless in the film, and the director did not elaborate in the commentary, but it's all pure inference on my part. Potentially, anything I'm right about is inference on the part of the actors and filmmakers through the adaptation process itself. But here's what I saw in Rachel's eyes. Fear that she will soon lose Nick and that this will be beyond her control. Shame that she could not be everything she was required to be by these maddening, impossible and sometimes lovely people, not enough to deserve him. Pride in who she actually is, somebody she tells herself is worthy of happiness. Courage to be able to step up and look in the eyes of these people who have made themselves her opponents. Love for Nick. It radiates off her, melancholy, ebbing into sorrow that their time together was so important to her but is drawing to a close. Regret that she couldn't have anticipated this. It was a game all along and her game theory teaching mind is adept in interpreting moves. Awe at the beauty beyond words of this moment, the surroundings and everything she's feeling right now. As painful as it is, the mix of emotions is life-affirming and wistfulness and the tiniest grain of hope as she looks at Nick and wonders what might happen if everything isn't ruined forever, which will shortly be dashed when Eleanor brings in her private investigator at the reception. The lights are shining, and Nick and Rachel both whisper a heavily loaded, I love you, and it's not even their wedding. It is amazing that all of this could go on during the happiest day of another couple's life. 
As we pull away, you can spot Astrid, tearful, breathless, and clearly reflecting on her own broken marriage, which just minutes beforehand hid an appalling drop as Michael stormed out of the car upon being confronted with his infidelity. Eleanor also seems distracted. Michelle Yeoh refused to play this as a villain, so she couldn't simply be glaring at Rachel, brimful of contempt. She's seen her son and this girl saying I love you in that incredibly genuine way, and she knows what she has to reveal, so she is conflicted. At the end of the day, she's out to fiercely defend her culture and her family from unworthy foreigners, but that doesn't mean she's in it wholeheartedly. And most whole movies, some whole TV shows, don't contain anywhere near as much readable, underpinned emotional turmoil and unspoken drama as this single scene. A while back on The Warriors episode, I made the rather bold claim that Crazy Rich Asians was better than Casablanca. Now, there's a slight facetiousness in that ridiculous statement, since so few film aficionados would agree with me. And obviously, Casablanca is a titan of cinema history, massively influential and definitely a sacred cow. It's almost always held up in the top five of the greatest films of all time lists. The problem is that those lists are almost always the same films in slightly different orders each time. And there's a very old white male sensibility about the choices. Godfather, Citizen Kane, Vertigo, Psycho, Apocalypse Now, Taxi Driver. Nothing made after 1980 unless Christopher Nolan did it. You look at sight and sounds lists and you'll be forgiven for thinking that film pretty much stopped being great the moment that Reagan became president. That everything made since then is just a footnote. That nothing could ever exceed the greatness of Eight and a Half, or Abu Souf or Nosferatu, or the battleship Potemkin. That artists said all they could say, and since then it's just been pop art and iterating on a theme. This denigrates the work of thousands of inspired master artists since then, and it jams the brakes on the very idea of progress. But what of the film itself, Crazy Rich Asians? You could look at the goodness inherent at the core of Casablanca and say it is a deeply elegant story about a man who has every opportunity to be selfish and stay neutral in a fight between good people and Nazis, the consummate evil of our society, but ultimately sacrifices his relationship with the woman he loves for her benefit as well as that of the world because Victor Laszlo truly is a good man who will help people. Rick sticks his neck out and puts himself in harm's way, ultimately resolving to go and do more good in the world, inspired by the events that have played out in the film. But if that's all it takes to be one of the greatest stories on celluloid, then Han Solo's turn in Star Wars deserves a nod. So clearly it's about the craft of the film, not what happens in the film. The truth is that Sharon and I saw both Casablanca and Crazy Rich Asians on a Sunday. Sharon had never seen either of them, and I'd seen both of them once, and I observed as I watched through both that Crazy Rich Asians tells a story about personal sacrifice in a way that I find more powerful than Casablanca. I felt many things about John M. Chu's movie were better crafted than many things in Michael Curtis's film, from cinematography to music to the sense of being in a place, and crucially, in telling a very human story about prejudice, weakness, vanity, resentment, bravery cowardice, heartbreak, betrayal, and pure selfless love. 
The stakes are obviously higher in the classic film Casablanca. It's a matter of life and death, and that extends to many people. But the core stories share a commonality. I am in no way throwing classic movies under the bus, like the writer of one furious and quite personally insulting iTunes review that we received for that statement interpreted. That would make me just as bad as the crusty old white gatekeepers of established film excellence, tossing everything new down the shaft while they once more polish their faded trophies made by Hitchcock, Goddard and Coppola. My beef is with them, not Casablanca. Crazy Rich Asians, in fact, goes out of its way to evoke classic cinema. It feels in many ways like The Great Gatsby, not just the 2013 Baz Luhrmann version or the 1974 Jack Clayton version, but the 1925 novel, which made parties come alive for readers in a deeply evocative fashion that was replicated in film from then on. Mark Sung for The Atlantic interpreted this retelling of a traditionally white story as a statement that in all those decades of white movies, those characters could have been Asian all along. It's a rom-com, complete with a rush to the airport to stop that plane. It's also a fairy tale about a regular girl being swept up in the glamour of a prince, but with a modern edge. It feels like a Harry Potter movie, introducing us to an exotic world through a down-to-earth POV character, or a Pixar movie with the on-screen razzmatazz underpinned by a deep measure of very real pain. And it's a family drama of the kind that Oscars have been flinging gold statues at for longer than any of us have been alive. You remember the best picture of 1980 that wasn't The Empire Strikes Back? It was Ordinary People, directed by Robert Redford. This is 120 years of cinema condensed into a focus point that at times can be overwhelming. And while it should in no ways be seen as the only Asian story to be told, because the majority of these ludicrous people are the 1% personified, it does play a prominent role in bringing Asian stories to an audience unfamiliar with them. Mark Sun Putterman's article, One Way in Which Crazy Rich Asians is a Step Back, is all about representation, and it's worth reading. Clearly, we have a long way to go before diversity and inclusivity on screen, even remotely, begin to accurately reflect the actual population of the world. But it's better now than it was before. And that is a sentiment I just keep returning to, because even though the world and its people keep getting hurt by regressives, there is an awful lot of movement in the right direction. And that's what keeps me going. Classic film is the strong foundation on which contemporary film is built. And in turn, what has been made over the past 40 years since 1980 will serve as the supporting flaws of the next half century of cinema, should we survive long enough as a species to see the year 2070. There is so much to learn by going back, but also in appreciating the moment and that nourishes us on our travel into the future. Casablanca is superb, and I urge everyone invested in film to take the time to go see it on a Sunday afternoon. But it's okay not to love every inch of it, and it's okay to prefer things that came later, and it's natural for the evolution of prior works to take on more complexity and achieve greater heights for new generations. We want our offspring to be better than us after all. That is the best way of things. Respect for our elders for what they did. For our children so that they know they have our support in what they will do. And for ourselves for what we're capable of doing right now. 
What irks me is a preoccupation with the director as the sole credited author of cinematic text and the lionising of actors, especially high-profile actors, while losing all focus on the cinematographers, the editors, the sound mixers, often even the writers. These unsung heroes that especially now that films are being studied frame by frame and word by word need to be celebrated all the more. The kind of films I love tend to have the whole cast and crew firing on all cylinders, just like Crazy Rich Asians. Guillermo del Toro said of the Academy dropping the televising of the technical awards this year, Cinematography and editing are at the very heart of our craft. They are not inherited from a theatrical tradition or a literary tradition. They are cinema itself. And I say, without these people, directors and actors will be standing around not knowing where to shoot, dressed in clothes they brought from home, and the makeup they put on that morning with their own hair just the way it always is, reading blank pages of non-existent scripts in the dark. And if that wasn't the case, and films shot with all of those key aspects in place, without an editor, every screening would be a hundred hours of nonsense, repeated over and over until everyone in the audience went mad. It should not fall upon the young to tell the old how to appreciate every aspect of cinema. It should be the other way round. But if that is our part, we will play it. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. <laughs>So all we've got left is the plane sequence, which, it, it, again, like I said, it almost feels like a cliche run to the airport, but there are, like, there are several things that this does differently that make it not just the run to the airport. Do you guys want to chip in on, on, and especially Jesse, because this makes you cry. Why does it make you cry? <laughs> uh, well, I mean, it's just, it makes me cry because of the, the emotion and all of the meaning behind just him opening it up and seeing Eleanor's ring. And being able to just quickly infer what all of that means and the emotion behind all of that. And, uh, you know, that's what gets me. Definitely. I mean, that moment is the capstone of the entire film. Hmm. And I, and I, the other thing that I like is that his, the speech that he gives is actually legitimately a really good proposal speech. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. it's, it's heartfelt and it's a deconstruction of the proposal speech at the same time that it is a proposal speech. Cause he says, you know, if in my mind's eye, I'm, I'm giving you this speech. I'm on one knee. It's a beautiful hidden island in the, the, at sunset. But but what's happening is that it's a plane surrounded by sweaty people who can't get their bags up in the, in the overhead. You know, and he's like, he's like, excuse me, sorry, just need two seconds with this woman. It's a microcosm for the entire thing, yeah. right? The entire film. It's a takedown of of the perfection that you expect that comes from. Hollywood, yeah, in the, you know what I mean. Like the, the, you're supposed to go into a movie theater for an hour and a half and be presented by this larger than life, greater than real spectacle, right? And Crazy Rich Asians is that, but it acknowledges that it's that, and it acknowledges that all that has come before, which is that spectacle, but it humanizes it and it and it brings it to a level of authenticity and sincerity and humanity which you don't often see Mm. not just in hollywood cinema but in art generally that's why i like this film i like this film because i like that the people in it feel like they're 
being sincere people, everyone, not not just the actors, but the filmmakers, the director, the scriptwriter, the editor, everybody who did something on this felt like they were they were striving towards a story that they wanted to craft rather than a movie that they wanted to make. Do you know what I mean? Michael Bay makes movies. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not good stories or good experiences of the human condition or or good anything. He's a whipping boy today. He's yeah, a whipping no, I mean, boy most of the time. Yeah. It's true. It's Ken Jong's fault, right? Because he was in trouble. Tra- yeah, he's the integer. <laughs> yeah. I'll tweet him later. Um, it felt like a nice distillation of everything that was this film. You know, that they wanted to to in, to infuse things with a sense of normalcy that you don't often get in big budget Hollywood productions. Yeah. That's really that's really it for me. It's juxtaposed with the uh, the scene at the beginning when they're in uh, first class and it's so ridiculous. Like she even comments that her the yep. pajamas are fancier than most of her clothes. Uh, yep. And uh, so you've got this world that she's not entirely comfortable in and then Nick effectively comes into her world which is coach and uh, he's yeah. not he's not Expressing oh, that he's uncomfortable, quite the opposite. He actually, like, he's trying to talk to her, but rather than, like, like pushing past people and being rude about it, he's actually genuinely helpful to them. He's like, if I just, if I help you with this, can I just, like, do, do my thing? And, like, it shows once again, like, you know, just what a decent guy he is, wearing money doesn't matter to him. And lots of this came from Henry, who is just that nice of a guy, from the sounds of it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, apparently they had to, like, keep stopping because he was stopping to help people along the way during the uh, film. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's a wonderfully genuine moment, but it also it reaffirms the fact that this is not about going to live with a prince on an ivory tower. Again, mm-hmm. the money is... It's not so much circumstantial, but it's not anywhere near as important as who this is. Yeah. And I think that's about it. The, the ending is basically the ending of Titanic, where she goes to this uh, party at the end. It's like, oh, we're all partying and we're all dead, probably. Like, and it's it's uh, it's on the top of that uh, amazing. Uh, what's the, what's the name of that place in in uh, uh, Singapore? Marina Bay Sands. Yeah, that's the one. And the building, right? Yeah. I, I feel yeah. like like this. As, as we said, this film cost like thirty-five million or something, wasn't 30 it? Thirty million. Thirty million, which is ridiculously cheap. Like it only cost a little mm-hmm. bit more than removing Henry Cavill's mustache from his face, <laughs> as Jesse mentioned in that in Justice League. Which, yeah. by the way, is the only thing anyone remembers about Justice League. Like all of that money and time and effort spent in making Justice League, and everyone just goes, "Yeah, his mouth was weird, though." And all that money and time and effort put made to make <laughs> Batman v Superman, they're like, "Yeah, Martha, that was stupid." It's like, but what about all the other good stuff? So what you're essentially saying is that Justice League could have just been 15 minutes of Henry Cavill with a fake moustache going, now it's on, now it's off, now it's on, now it's on. You know what? Better movie. (laughs) What was I saying? It feels like the the producers had a word with the Singapore tourist board and government and said, like, if we film here, it will make Singapore look fantastic. What's the, the lowest amount that we could rent it for? Uh, for, for this mm. evening and it feels like that this almost works against it to some people who immediately rejected it as like again like these are the back to the one star Amazon reviews this is just tourism for Singapore even if it is it's the best tourism video ever made but at the same time, it feels like, no, this is authentically trying to encapsulate what it's like to be in Singapore and to have means to enjoy Singapore to its fullest. I was going to say, to be in the very, very 
rich areas yeah. of Singapore. We could go to Singapore tomorrow. We would not have this story. <laughs> yeah. Although we'd probably get to meet Calvin. <laughs> The little like side eye, like uh, after the credits, um, where um, Astrid, who is now the princess who coronated herself, and she's now free of, of Michael, like glances around, and uh, who's that guy that she actually sees? It's Charlie Wu, who is a character in the book, but they did really well to not go right. We got to tell you about the backstory of Astrid and Charlie Wu here. It's mm-hmm. just to the average person, it's just uh, oh, a, se- a sexy Asian man. But I have a sneaky a feeling future that for Astrid. that's coming. I yeah. think that's that's yeah. a more prominent story. Story in mm. Crazy Rich Girlfriend. Is that the sequel? Yeah, that's the sequel. Yeah, China Rich Girlfriend. I, I doubt they would have cast Harry Shum Jr. if mm. they didn't have plans for him in the sequel. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Which, by the way, am I the only person who thinks Asian Nathan Fillion a little bit? I thought that too. Um, yeah, I same, can see that. Same. Yeah. <laughs> and there's only a final glance between mother and daughter-in-law in this with uh, Eleanor and Rachel. And I, I remember thinking when I thought, saw it the first time, you need to go to Eleanor and have a brief conversation while looking over a balcony. Then the second time I watched it, it was like, no, that's perfect. It's so much better. I don't use the P word much, but this is perfect insofar as it's so much better that they don't pour their hearts out about this. Also, because Eleanor also, doesn't really do that. Also, she swerved. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Buck, buck. Eleanor Swift. Yeah. Good call. Nice. But as you say, uh, Sharon, everybody wins in this scenario. Again, it's it's the uh, experienced bending just a little to allow in some something new and strange. And significantly, everyone gets what they want, but not everyone gets what they knew they wanted. <laughs> so it's like the princess and the frog. Right. Okay. So that's Crazy Rich Asians, folks. We I, This has been just as rich as an I was hoping hour, for. An hour, we said. We said an hour. <laughs> it's been just over two, but uh, but thank you. Okay, gentlemen, before we go, uh, where can people find your stuff? Jesse, go first. Uh, you can find me. I have a podcast with my friend Jonathan called Recorded Tomorrow. Mm-hmm. It's uh, all about t- using time travel effectively in fiction. Uh, you can find it wherever <laughs> you can find podcasts, and you can see us on Twitter at Time Travel Pod. And Calvin, thank you so very much for coming on the show. It has been an absolute honor and a pleasure having you. Like, we hoped that you'd be great, but you just fit straight in with the conversation. You've it was spot on. Oh, amazing, you. Calvin, really. Some of the insight that you've brought has, has kind of verbalized for me some of the things I really loved about the film but couldn't quite put my finger on. Yeah. So thank oh, you so thank much. Thank you, thank you. You lent us an air of authenticity, which uh, was. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm pretty sure you did that on your own. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, where can people find your stuff? I post all it's a bunch of places, but I post all of it on Twitter. You can find me um, that my username is Ithala, I-T-H-A-Y-L-A. Find me there. I will put that in the show notes so people can get Thank there you. straight away. Okay. And we're going to leave you guys with a double bill of Vote by Miguel and Mark Ronson and the cover of Money, That's What I Want by Cheryl Kay featuring Aquafina. There's two versions of that in this movie. We never really mentioned the soundtrack. It's, uh, it's, it's Oh, it's so good. It's got Brian really Tyler. He does uh, American movies. He does some Marvel movies. Thor The Dark World and Iron Man 3. And, uh, and, and again, that kind of lends it uh, this, this Marvel feeling. But uh, he, there's, again, this, this sense of being able to capture a place. 
It's it's like the core uh, themes of Black Panther were not composed by an African, but he really got that sense of place and being. That was Swedish composer Ludwig Göransson. And then Brian Tyler's transportive score is coupled with this eclectic mix of new songs, old songs, and old songs done in a new way. All of them with Asian vocalists. But there's two versions of Wo Ya Ni De Ai, one sung by Grace Chang, who was originally born in 1934, and one sung by contemporary Chinese jazz artist Jasmine Chang. And some of them, including Money That's What I Want, Can't Help Falling In Love With You, Yellow, and Material Girl, are covers of, of songs that we're familiar with, but they have got this twist on them. Uh, you know, again, really sort of puts you in this place where you're like, okay, I get where we are, but it's just new flavors. So much energy gained from the uh, music in this film, and uh, yeah, really mm. loved it. Uh, listened to it repeatedly. And School of Movies is funded by Patreon. That's you guys who keep us going. And all of our $15 supporters get name-checked every week, so thank you too. Joel Robinson, Abel Savard, Michael Hasco, Timothy Green, Matthew A. Siebert, Benjamin Biddle, Joseph Gluck, Kevin Otero, Luke Hatfield, Nick Ord, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finn Barnicol, Jameis Enright, Mark Lush, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, Kieran Datchler, and Lorraine Chisholm. Coming two weeks from now, so we're going to give you that much time to watch it, we've got a show on the first three seasons of The Good Place. It will be jam-packed with spoilers. We heartily recommend you watch this show. And it sounds like a big commitment to ask you to watch that much TV. There's a lot of it. But I guarantee if you watch the pilot episode from the first season, you will know by the end of those 22 minutes whether you want to carry on with it. It's that good a pilot at expressing what the show's like. But before we all go to the good place, next week, a long-awaited sequel that I went to see trepidatiously thinking, it can't possibly be as good as the original. And somehow, it's as good as the original. So I called together an emergency podcast meeting to allow us to cover, at relatively short notice, The Lego Movie 2. Oh, man. For all those of you who were hoping I was going to say How to Train Your Dragon 3, we'll be covering all three of those movies later this year. So you got that to look forward to as well. So that is it from us. We will be back next week. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And Crazy Rich Rich School's out. (laughs) (laughs) Got that feeling. The feeling too easy. The love is out breathing. Gotta vote for a good time. Take your name across the sky. Breathe it in and we can fly. Love for love and not for lies. Yeah, so let's vote. Like you just got paid. Spent it all on Mary Jane. It's a celebration. Yeah, so I go. Oh, everything's changing. It's got me feeling strange, but we can stand together. Yeah, just go. Summer nights that we were wild. Make the choice that makes you proud. Make the choice that makes you proud. Yeah, just go. One good time. One time for Kayla. Two times for Tima. No one's feeling. I'm
much beauty in a nothing Sometimes life is ugly We're all searching for something So let's both wait now Don't wait, make the choice that sets you free now Emancipate your mind, you'll be fine if you just fight Taking them across the sky
我想要的。你的爱让我怦然心动，你的爱无法为我买单。我需要钱，这是我想要，这是我想要，这是我想要的。